This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome, welcome to another edition of In Class with Dr. Greg Carr. I'm your host, Karen Hunter, and let me just welcome everyone today, this 3rd of October. Hey, Dr. Carr. Hey, Professor Hunter. How are you, my dear friend? So, yeah, so today we were going to talk about the debates. We were going to talk about a whole host of things, and then Trump got COVID. So I think we need to talk maybe a little bit about it. And then I got, not an epiphany today, but I was like, you know, we've been talking a lot about moving and leaving the country. And I thought it would be nice for us to talk about the Proud Boys and how our ancestors might have handled that because what Africans have done, Africans can do. That's and right. we're have conversations about Africa today as well and some history. That's but right. um, I haven't talked to you since I woke up the other morning to Trump having COVID-19 and there's been a lot of theories about maybe he doesn't have it. And, and I don't want to go down that path. I want to wish him a speedy recovery and good health to he and his wife, because that's what we do, because we're human beings. Hmm. But um, what are your thoughts? I wish him what he would wish me. Okay. Yeah, because I don't, I don't, uh, it's interesting, uh, Karen, we, um, and isn't it, isn't it interesting how this conversation has overtaken us in the week that he basically showed us, reminded us of who he was Tuesday night. And, and, and yeah, we should talk a little bit about the Proud Boys because something else happened that day. There was a sister who testified, actually, the, uh, the House Oversight Committee, uh, which committee was it? Um, they had a hearing on white supremacist infiltration in police forces. And it took place on Tuesday. It was the, uh, the House Oversight and Reform Committee, Jamie Raskin, who's a congressman here in Maryland. And there was a sister who testified named Heather Taylor. And it's all on C-SPAN. You can look at the whole two-hour uh, Zoom hearing. Uh, she's the president of the Ethical Society of Police in St. Louis, Ferguson. That whole, this sister's bad. Y'all look her up, Heather Taylor. Um, young sister, you know how folks get into the military or get into law enforcement early and get out early. She's a 20-year veteran. She just retired, she said, uh, within the past few weeks. Uh, she retired as a detective sergeant in homicide. And she testified as to these white supremacists, how they have uh, engaged in all this online stuff, how several of them, one guy in particular, she kept reporting, he killed, killed, killing black men and women, killed a black man. Uh, the other guy that would help him, the cops, they call themselves arresting, uh, using the N-word. And this, all this in this past three or four days, and of course, Breonna Taylor, the transcript came out. Well, not the transcript, the recordings. Daniel Taylor conveniently excised out of that 15 hours, however, uh, Brother Taylor, uh, excised the the charges that the that he and the uh, attorney general's office, how they charged the grand jury, what they told them they could couldn't do what they thought. He he conveniently left that out, said, well, that's not evidence. So I'm not going to include that now because you don't want you want to throw the rock and hide your hand. But in the uh, the recordings. What you hear, what's being reported, the reporters, New York Times, others, NPR, been listening to these recordings. And so they're reporting out, for example, when the cops come in, there was one police on the scene with a body cam who says, I thought I had turned it on, but I hadn't, which is itself a violation, but that's a story for another day. But in the testimony, what comes out is, Brother Walker, Grana, uh, Taylor's boyfriend, says, the cop asked him, are, are you shot? And he said, no. And the cop said, too bad. In other words, they went in there as a death squad. So, but but all this is going on. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, 
you know, and and, and I'm like you say, Jelani Cobb was tweeting this, and a lot of other people saying, you know, does he have it? Are you sure? You convene? Do we know? Because you know, you got to be a journalist. You're trying to figure out. My thing is this: whether you have it or not, it's a distraction. It's a distraction, and people are saying, you know, all on mass commercial media. Oh, we, we you know, we 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 wish you speedy recovery. You know, it's interesting. I'll start with the Bible because you know good to see everybody. We're all here. Uh, this morning, I was listening to the radio here in Washington, D.C., and there's a sister who's a real uh, hero of our struggle, a uh, member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Dory Ladner. She and her sister, Joyce Ladner. Joyce Ladner, who was the first female president of Howard University, even though she was the interim, and they screwed her out of being the permanent president. And you know how they do black women. She's, she was there for over a year. But anyway, the Ladner sisters came out of Mississippi. We've talked about them before. Hattiesburg. And I heard uh, Ms. Dory this morning on the radio. She, she comes on Saturday mornings and does a little back and forth with my brother Lance Reynolds over on WPFW, one of the Pacific stations. And he asked her, he said, you know, so what do you think about this? And she said, well, you know what they say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. The man reaps what he sows. And then the brother, and it was silence. <laughs> and then Lance said, I guess that's all that needs to be said. And I thought it was interesting because we are called upon to convey not a humanity, but a superhumanity. Black people come into this, uh, into the death camps, the plantations, they come into the Western hemisphere. We come into this field of violence called Western civilization, which by the way, the Proud Boys claim they're defending. They said, you know, white men built all this and Proud Boys and all these other offsprings um, uh, that, that people like Richard Spencer, who had the earlier iteration, who credited, so to speak, we're talking about the alt-right. I was talking to, uh, to Nick Cannon earlier in the week. I love that brother. I really do. Um, he will talk to anybody. He like He's like you in this regard. Y'all are like, it, it don't matter. Devil, did you do something to our people? You know what? I'll sit with you. Explain yourself. And then put that fire on him. He was like, why are you talking? But see, that's how you build trust. There's got to be somebody who will know. If it involves us, I want to know about it. And I, I ain't take, I want to know about it. So anyway, he talked to Richard Spencer. He roasted him. I said, well, what, you talking to Rich Spencer? Yeah, I'm going to talk to Rich Spencer. Okay, all right, bro. Well, what you going And so Spencer, this thing has gotten beyond him now. But see, the Proud Boys, Spencer, uh, the, the Patriot Prayer, which is out there in the Northwest, uh, the Boogaloo Boys, who are caught up in all kinds of things. Gerald Horn was talking about this the other day. Uh, Gerald talking about, you know, they, 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 they've been tied to some murders in Northern California, but they all share this in common. They say this is a white man's country. This is a white man, not women's uh, civilization. And they're very proud of that. But when we got pulled into it, because, you know, with the labor and the intellect that basically formed, they forced us to help them in this criminal enterprise. And then we took the lead and basically built everything that they could profit from. Shout out to our brother, Mike Harriet. In fact, I, he just published an article in this magazine, just came out, Yes Magazine or case for reparations, which I thought was brilliant. He reads it through uh, Briggs versus Elliott. And I think he's from South Carolina. But, but at any rate, we got pulled into this. And then the attempt was made to shape who we are to the white imagination. i never forget uh, Lenore, Lenore Fulani, who of course ran for president. Uh, people talk about Shirley Chisholm, but they forget Lenore Fulani and I forget the name of the party. It was in New York, Memphis, the sister. Yeah, she, but, but she said uh, she was on Donahue who to my money, as far as commercial media talk show hosts, 
still nobody has reached the plateau of Phil Donahue. I mean, no shade on Oprah and the rest of them. You know, Oprah beat Donahue, yeah, but if you ever go back and watch them, Francis Crest Welsing, Louis Farrakhan, I mean, he was willing to, which I think probably part of the reason he got shown the door. But I'll never forget Lenora Fulani was on there. And she said, you know, black people are tired of being footnotes in white history. And I remember that stuck in my mind. It was back in the 80s. I was like, wow. But in many ways, Donald Trump is sick. And people expect black people to be superhuman, not human. Because, you know, either we subhuman or superhuman. You're supposed to show somebody something that they never showed you because you don't want to be perceived as somehow being hateful and spiteful and shot and fruit. We can back up off the Germans. The Bible people who know the Bible went straight to Galatians 6, 7. And this is where the, I love this. I pulled, because I tweeted that. I, I wish for Donald Trump, I send the same regards to Donald Trump that he would send to me and mine. In other words, a lot of the African spiritual traditions, Africana spiritual traditions, believe that you don't get in the way of forces that we all exist in. So in other words, I'm not going to wish bad on you. I'm not going to wish bad on you. Why? Because if you wish bad on somebody, it's going to come back on you. The, we sit at the center of creation. So no, I'm not going to, but this is, this is also what I'm not going to do. I am not going to go out of the way to help you kill me either. So in other words, what you've done, you got to pay the bill for that. I'm not jumping down with my wallet and saying, hold on, God, hold on, God. Let me let me put 20 on, on that debt. Well, no, you incurred that debt. This is what Mike is saying in his article. He's saying after the 14th Amendment was passed, everything that happened after that was theft. I love the way Mike did it because he said, and actually we're talking about this in my education in Black America class. He walks through how in South Carolina, Black folks were paying taxes property taxes, income taxes, all this. And of course, white people during Jim Crow take all that money and give it to the white schools. He says, so that's theft because white, black people don't have the schools for their children because the money they paid in taxes went to the white schools. He says, so don't make a case for reparations just going back to slavery. You can look at every time you have invested in public dollars and those dollars didn't include you. That's where that wealth gap that started with enslavement explodes. So let's be very clear. So I'm saying that to say this, that's in terms of tangible resources. In terms of spiritual resources, no, you ran up a tab. You got to pay that tab. I'm not getting in the way of paying that tab. Do not see God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. Now, how I feel about it, that's between me and you and us and the creator. But, but this is where I went. I went to the Proverbs. I said, let me see. That's the biblical proverb. Black people look at the Bible in many ways, and not, not all the ways, but I think we read the Bible often the way that we were reading texts before we were brought here. Mm. In other words, the, you know, Ron Walters used to ask this question. He said, don't just ask when do we become Jamaicans or Haitians or African-Americans in the U.S. He said, ask this question too, right alongside it. When did we stop being Africans? He said, the answer to that question is we didn't. So when we got that Bible, we didn't start at Genesis and go all the way to Revelation and read it like it's a book, even though some people read a, a chapter, read you know, this kind of thing. No, we looked at it and we picked out the stories that we said, okay, these are the lessons for us. So if you go to the Old Testament, black people will quote you. I've seen how many sermons you've seen, Karen, where they preach about Daniel and the lion's den or, the, or, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the children. I mean, in other words, that's us in that furnace. You tried, you put three of us in there, and when you opened it up to see if we was gone, it was four, and one was the son of God. No, black people said, that's my story. I'll take that one. 
I'll take that. If you ever hear the, uh, the song, um, oh man, uh, uh, Aretha Franklin used to sing it. Oh Mary, don't you weep. Oh. Think about when she's singing that. Oh Mary, won't you weep? Tell Martha not to moan. And you're right. So everybody at the cross, right? Oh Mary, don't you weep? Everybody, oh sing that song. Tell Martha not to moan. Now watch this. We're in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the New Testament. We at the cross. What does she do? Take it all the way back through the Bible, back Pharaoh. to Exodus. Pharaoh's army. Wait, 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 wait. I thought we was at the cross. Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea, drowned in the Red Sea. Now, okay, now wait. I'm singing Mary. Oh, man. What did you just do? I'm reading this book, not like a book. I'm reading it the way the Yoruba read the Odu Ifa. There's a, there are stories in this book that speak to our liberation struggle. And I'm not going to just go from the beginning to end like it's a book you read that way. No, it is a book of Proverbs. It is a book of story. And ain't, Proverbs ain't just in Proverbs. It's a book of metaphors. So I went to the metaphors. Here's a little book. It's probably impossible to find. It's not one of them books that people should probably go look for unless you're going to find. Um, Isaac Delano wrote a book many years ago called, he compiled a book called Ekbeka Oro Yoruba, Appropriate Words and Expressions in Yoruba. I like this book because it's a book of Proverbs. And so there's a lot of book on Proverbs. In fact, a book you can get on Proverbs uh, that my man um, um, Kwasi, uh, Kwasi Kanadu edited uh, or republished by Kwasi Yanka is called The Proverb. This is a good book right here. The Proverb uh, is a good book because it talks about the role of Proverbs in African societies, but it's a case study of the Akan people. So what this brother does Kwesiyanka, he said, let me focus on one group because people tend to take African proverb. Oh, African proverb. There's no one place. And we say Africa, where you mean? So he goes with the Akan. But anyway, here to go to Yoruba. And the Akan is what we were talking about last week with uh, loyalty and the oh. Adinkra symbols. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I'm glad you stopped me, Karen, because let me pause here for a second just to do this. Somebody said there goes that book budget. Yeah, y'all going to. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, we are. But he, yeah, and I want to actually, I do want to talk a little bit about that as well because books are important. And here, let me see if uh, this is the book. Let me before I go to the Yoruba book, let me let me let me just say this very quickly because yesterday, as I was thinking about today, before this ancestor whispered in your ear, we're gonna talk about it in a minute. Are y'all about to have talk about mind blowing? I had my mind blown earlier today, so now y'all about to get y'all's mind blown by this sister right here sitting here because they talking to her. You, you gonna see though? You gonna you, you gonna see? So when you said Kente, in fact, they talking to you now, Kente. I um, there are books that are hard to find because they're not published in the United States. Many of our, of course, the whole continent of Africa. There's a whole publishing tradition in Africa, of course, and of course this is international. So folks out there who are on the continent and in the Caribbean. Let's all link hands and join together because there are books y'all have that we can't get here, except you just got to keep looking, keep looking, ask people, you send stuff. So there's a book that I got called The Pride of Eve Kente. This was published actually in Ghana, right? Sub-Saharan publishers. And so every time somebody go to Ghana, I ask them for certain titles, right? So this book here, The Pride of Eve Kente, is by a brother named um, Ahi Agble Bob Dennis. That's the guy. So, you know, he got a European name, but he is a master weaver. He weaves kente cloth. And there, there's this picture right there. There's the brother right there, Agbe Bob Dennis, right? So people go to Ghana. They say, I'm going to Ghana. I haven't been back to Ghana. The first time I went was 96. 
And so we went to the University of Ghana uh, publishing houses. And basically, I don't think I came back to the States with any clothes. I gave away everything. The only thing I had in my suitcase was books. <laughs> so I'm every time I go to Africa, that's what I do. I mean, I, I got some T-shirts and some jeans and something I can leave there and then empty suitcases. So when I'm leaving New York, New York, you just have to go to Egypt and say, why are you what, it's so light? So don't worry about that. They're going to be heavy when they come back. So as Swan, I got to get all the books. So anyway, this little book, this little thin book, Kente Cloth. This is what shows you. It's very interesting. Let me see. I think it's on page 12. Yeah. And this is the point I want to make. Then I'm going to go to the Europe, and then we're going to get to the thing, right? Because this is all Trump, by the way. See, you've been reduced to a footnote in black history. But we're going to come back to you. We haven't left you because that's what you should be, which is why ain't nobody should be tripping off this thing. Let that man do what he's going to do, him and his wife and all the rest of them. You know, just don't get in the way. Don't, don't block your blessing, as the old folks would say. So, <laughs> you know, so at any rate, Kente, this is the, the point I wanted to make was this. When we think about history, we think about ourselves. Human history is a series of rememberings and forgettings. There are violences of forgettings that often cut us off to things we knew before. The more we remember, the better we can think about what we want to do now, because we have access to more memory. That's why in this project that you wonderfully established and grown with us here, this in-class series, you're helping us think through. And then through the week, you're helping us think through. I want to know about this, but I know we need to know about this. So come here and tell me something about this. The more knowledge we have, the more we can apply it. It's applied knowledge. What good is it to know and not act? So Kente, we all know this is the name for the cloth that we see. We now the young people got them on their stoles for graduation. It's very nice. Then we go to the name Kente. I think she's probably, she's there. Karen's there. So according to- I wanted to focus on you. Oh, no, 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 you got to come back. No, but uh, this is interesting. According to the Agotime people, A-G-O-T-I-M-A-E, Agotime people, an Eve people, Eve is E-W-E, the Eve people, um, uh, Eve people living in the Volta region, Kente was not the original name of the cloth. The Eve word for loom, in other words, the thing that you weave, if y'all ever been to Kumasi, which is the capital like the Ashanti land, Ashanti land, you go to the weaver's village and that's where they weave the kente. All that kente you see, uh, Roland Martin wearing when he's wearing this kente stuff, he got it all in and around uh, Kumasi. Right? He says the Ebe word for loom is Agba, A-G-B-A. And the word for cloth is Avo, A-V-O. Together, these two words form Agbamevo, the Eve name for any cloth woven on a loom. This was the word originally used for kente. Kente is not Ashanti in origin. It is Agotime in origin. Agotime is a smaller group of people. This is, this is very interesting. Here's the last thing. According to oral tradition, so the first thing you need is you got to be in this tradition to know this history. Most history, you got to be in tradition. It's not in books. You got to pass it down. So I'm very grateful to have gotten this book. He says, according to oral tradition, the ancestors of the Agotime weavers were once held captive by the Ashanti. The Ashanti, like the Yoruba, they known for rolling on people. If y'all like the Zulu in Southern Africa, and in a minute we're gonna talk about conflict and war. Black people are like any other group of human beings in the world. Sometimes we have beefs, and some people are known for starting beef more than other people. You know, the cats in the family who you know gonna come if they have a little bit too much drink, they're gonna beat up somebody or somebody gonna get loud them the same Negroes you call when you get in trouble. Like when we go out here and vote over the next few weeks of early voting, 
if the Boogaloo boys want to show up or the Proud boys want to show up, that's your cousins and them. You're going to say, did you vote? All right, bro. Why don't you walk down with me and just drop me off? In fact, don't even drop me off. Park and just wait over here. Why? Because they don't want no parts of that. See, these Proud boys now, they're talking all that smack. But let's be very clear. We got some of these Negroes, too. And some of them got that Ashanti blood. I know you Jamaicans know what I'm talking about because the Eve, many of them ended up in Jamaica. Anyway, the uh, according to oral tradition, the Ashanti rolled on the Agotime and had them captives. But the Agotime did not understand the Ashanti language. Tree, T-W-I, is the umbrella language, but there are many other languages within the tree language. Right? So the Agotime did not speak the Ashanti variation. Watch this. Yet they still had to teach the Ashantis how to weave. So they adopted a sign language and use of certain simple Eve words, such as key, K-E-E, -E, which means to cradle the shed by pressing the treadle. In other words, that's the loom language they use. Key means you create the shed that you, you're pressing the treadle. You're, you're beginning to weave, K-E-E. -E. And T, T-E-E, -E, which refers to the use of the reed to compress the weft yarn tightly. So you're pressing it now. You're, you're pressing to weave, and then you're pressing the, the, the strings together to make the kente. Key and T were put together to form kiti or kente. People, we think it's Ashanti, but it's the group the Ashanti had captive. There's a violence at the beginning of this that allows when we think of kente to enter our imagination as something African that is preceded by a moment of violence. That is what happens in the world. That is what happens in society. Sometimes you can't avoid conflict. And in the, and, and in the wake of conflict, you may have something that you can use for another purpose. The United States was born in settler violence. We're here now. We have been oppressed, but we survived. And what we do now, based on what we know in the past, including the history of things that can come out of violence, are tools we can use to build a different world. But I thought about that in terms of Kente because you mentioned that, Karen. And again, you didn't know that I had that book in arm's reach. And when you said Kente, yo, y'all watching, we did not plan this. This is not new. That ain't even nothing. That's the appetizer for the ancestors. And let's go back through the Yorubas. I was about to mention this proverb. Miss Dory this morning mentioned uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. And I'm sure she was not alone. And many elders, when they heard, oh, Donald Trump, Lonnie Trump have COVID. Yeah, well, you know what they say in Galatians 6, 7. God cannot be mocked. The man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. I mean, come on now. Some of y'all know that Galatians. Anyway, let's go back to the fact that some people evoke that. Here's what the Yoruba might say. The Yoruba might say, and I won't even attempt the Yoruba language. See, if I was in class at Howard, I got a lot of students who speak Yoruba. So in something like this, I just show them the page and say, pronounce this for me. Anyway, a heedless dog will not be useful in hunting. What does that mean? Warning given to a person about another who will not take advice. See, Donald Trump need to sit with the Bible lie. Now, I know he over Walter Reed, wherever he is, he need to call in some spiritual consult and it don't need to be Barry Black or any of the spiritual, no, 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 no. Bring in the, the Yoruba Bible lie and tell me why am I sick? Well, you know, a heedless dog won't be useful in hunting. Oh, watch this. The sword has no respect for the smith who made it. What does that see? These African proverbs are not simple. They sound simple to you. Think about it. The sword has no respect for the smith who made it. Don't get on uh, the wrong side of a situation. The law, the ancestor, the creator, 
See, the sword you made that has cut the necks of all those people we saw getting buried in mass graves in New York City. The sword you made by not allowing, not putting our tax dollars, Mike Harriet said it right, theft. You stealing our money and giving it to your friends, contractors and stuff, instead of putting out masks and to your, uh, your signals to the Michigan militia, when you sent them to Lansing and said, come out there with no masks on and challenge the lives of everybody so that the sister who's a legislator in, in Lansing sent for the brothers with the long rifles to walk her in because the, the governor uh, was like, yo, we just going to cancel the legislature now. Now, see, all that right there, I'm not about to jump down in the middle of what's coming to you because I got enough sense from my ancestors, what they left, and from the books that, that y'all forced on us that we then read. I got enough sense to know when to back up off of you and let whatever's coming come. So whatever's coming is coming. I don't wish you no ill health and I don't wish you no good health. I don't wish you nothing because I know that in the world, everything that happened is going to happen by the fact that what you do come back to you. I've seen karma float a lot. So anyway, that, that's enough on our friend and the Boogaloo boys and all them. So <laughs> let's get let's get to it. <laughs> Because we got work to do. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. And, you know, we, we wanted to come in. Of course, we're going to take questions. And, yes. you know, I think everybody that has, you know, given us special stickers and donations and things yes. for the book, book fund, we appreciate it. And the things that we're we're about to do, the book club that's coming. Um, but I got up this morning and I was like, okay, we got to touch on this. We want to pay homage to an ancestor that has, has left. Uh, yesterday was the birthday of Nat Turner, ironically. Wow. Yes. Yeah, ironically. Uh, but we, we lost somebody and you want to, to pay homage because I think in this space, we have to remember people and we have to say their names, right? Yes. So let's talk just a minute about Bob Gibson. And this is like, before we do that, let me just say one of the, the greatest blessings of, of having met you is that you remind me that it's, this life is to be lived and to be explored on all fronts. So, you know, you're a man that you can play an instrument. You went to law school. You got a PhD. You read a lot. You like comic books. You like music. You, you like sports. And I think, you know, many of us, we, we live such a, a boxed in life where we don't explore all of the, the, the things about us that make us who we are. And when you sing, I just, you know, inside I'm like, this is the path to just be everything. So mm -hmm. let me thank you for being yourself coming in here. No, thank now, thank you. You know, I feel the same way about you, Karen. I mean, from the first time we met when we Ajua, and again, oh, I should Ajua gonna get me. Of course, Ajua Batwe Azmwa, her people are Shakti, so she Ghanaian. So you know, boy, you talk about them hot Negroes. I'd be getting my whole throat cut if I don't mention the fact that Ajua is when she brought us together. I tell you, um, it's a real blessing because to watch you from a distance and then to be in the space for you to have created that platform and then brought all these other Africans in after a whole other career, you aren't even looking for uh, awards for these white folks, but to win their highest awards over and then to establish that persona and that ability so much so that people are frightened from it. In fact, there's another Yoruba, uh, there's another Yoruba uh, saying that says, you know, uh, he or she that marries beauty marries trouble. And <laughs> it's like, what does that mean? Because it means that if you have a thing that is beautiful, if you have a thing that is, you know, exceedingly attractive to people, people are going to hate you for it. So it's the really the or one of the origins of the, of the notion of haters. So in spite of all those haters, Karen, 
who come at you and say, this is, look at the beauty. Okay, what can we do? You can't do nothing. Because I got another set of sayings that talks about what happens when you try to cover the sun. You can't cover the sun. All you're going to do is burn up your coat. So in other words, so I'm so grateful that in, in, in bringing us in the warmth of the energy you have generated through the movement, through time and space, you're attracting us because everybody, as our, as our mans would say, uh, was it Roy Ayers? Everybody loves the sunshine. So thank you for bringing us into the sunshine, Karen, and for just continuing to grow. So, uh, but Bob Gibson is, um, yeah, Bob Gibson, Bob Gibson, I think, is a name that many people will know from a certain age. Now, I'm 55. So when I was born, Bob Gibson was in his prime as a pitcher. He's a major league pitcher. And he made transition at the age of 84 uh, yesterday, pancreatic cancer. Bob Gibson, my earliest memories of Bob Gibson aren't on watching him in television. Um, my earliest memories of Bob Gibson were from, you know, and, and the English language is, is really kind of a, it's really a car crash language between the Germanic languages and Latin. So there are a lot of things obviously don't translate from languages to, to languages, but black people, when we had English forced in our mouths, we had to create kind of loose, loose translation phrases because we didn't really have a name. So in a lot of Africana societies, if an elder, an elder, all elder men are like father, all elder women are like mother. So, you know, auntie, uncle, difficult. And then, but when we get here in the Caribbean, you know, if it's an older woman, you call her auntie. You know, you call her uncle or whatever. Or now the Nigerian kids, and they come to Howard, been there for 20 years. I've had students 15, 20 years ago now. They see me, hey, uh, I mean, in other words, they just use the language. We had to use the language. Well, one of the things that we created, we put two words together. We took one word and made it an adjective form, an adjective form to attach to relationships. So now people will say, you know, this is Ebonics, right? This is sociolinguistics. They will say, my play cousin, my play father. That's my play mom. That's my play dad, that kind of thing. Well, one of my play grandfathers, um, that's how I know Bob Gibson. That's how I came to know, began to know, was introduced to Bob Gibson. When I was old enough to push a lawnmower, uh, my mother and father, we had a little, a little we, my mother and father had rented a little half of a duplex in South Nashville. And across the street was a house that, uh, my mother, when she came to Nashville, she joined a church, came to the Missionary Baptist Church, the church we, we all grew up in. And there was a lady on the usher board named Sadie Sharon. Uh, she adopted my mother. So she's like my, my mother's play mother, right? And Miss, Miss Sadie, or Granny, as we learned to call her, lived across the street. She lived with her brother. She's never married. Her brother was never married. Her brother was Mr. James. So Granny and Mr. James lived across the street in South Nashville. My brother... Jeff, my sister Gussie, I'm sure they remember Granny and Mr. James. We loved him. When I was old enough to push a more, I would go across the street and help Mr. James cut the yard. This is all apprenticeship. We all, you know, still this, right? So me and Mr. James be cutting the grass, cutting the grass. There were no professional baseball teams in Nashville. There were no professional baseball teams in the South except since uh, the Atlanta Braves. So at night, we would listen to the radio, listen to baseball games. The Braves. That's when Ralph Gar, Henry Aaron, that's why I got this shirt on. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, those guys. And the other station we could get was out of Cincinnati. So we would listen to the Clear Channel AM station, Cincinnati Reds. This is when the big red machine, Ken Griffey Sr., not Junior. He wasn't even up. Ken Griffey Sr., George Foster, all those guys, along with Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, and them, Joe Morgan. So grew up listening to baseball. Get a little older, get a little older. So now I'm in 
junior high school, you know, my play granddaddy, Mr. James. Mr. James' favorite pitcher was Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson, the intimidating Bob Gibson. So I had to go back and I would catch Bob Gibson interviews on television as a kid now, 13, 14, 15 years old. I would watch whenever they would show replays and stuff. And this dude was bad. He would pull his baseball cap dead over his eyes. He was an intimidating pitcher. Seemed like he didn't like nobody. And so, and I'll keep this short because he made transition yesterday. And I wanted to mention him because Bob Gibson was born in Omaha, Nebraska. Bob Gibson was born about, uh, well, he followed his brother, Josh. And you asked me, we were talking, you said, you know, is he related to Josh Gibson? Yes and no, not by blood. His older brother's name was Josh. But Bob Gibson was related by craft and profession because Bob Gibson did never played in the Negro Leagues. But of course, when Bob Gibson was born, he was born at a time when the Negro Leagues were still going strong. And so Bob Gibson was born in 1935, which is 10 years after Malcolm X. He's born in Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha is important. Omaha, Nebraska was the, after Los Angeles, had the second largest black population for a number of years in the so-called West, West of the Mississippi. It's fascinating to understand Omaha, Nebraska is a region that is said that York, who was the African who was with Lewis and Clark, enslaved actually by them, uh, came through on the way to the Pacific Northwest. Omaha, Nebraska was a place a lot of black people went to migrated from after enslavement during Reconstruction and after. And Omaha, by the time Bob Gibson was born, had this big black population. He grew up in the housing projects. Oh, by the way, I should mention this. Ten years earlier, your colleague, and I, 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 let me ask you a question, Karen, before I go on. I'm sure you knew him. He's a, he, he's an ancestor now, but Les Payne. Do you have any members of Les Payne? Yeah. Okay. Tell us a little about Les Payne. Where you played? He was at a competitor paper. Les yes. Payne. Yes, I knew that. Les Payne was at Newsday when I was at the Daily News, but he was definitely uh, somebody that I admired. Uh, one of the first black columnists. And uh, he, Bob Herbert, was at my paper. Very few black columnists. Uh, but Les Payne was a legend. Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't get to know him personally. And when I met him, he was in, you know, already in his later years. Of course. But uh, definitely as a journalist, somebody I looked up to. Okay, that's that's why I figured I, I wanted to pause and ask you about him so you could lift his name because these ancestors, we talk about them in there. And, I'm, and there are so many people, I'm sure, who are in here with us now who never heard that name, who, who need to hear it. Because you know, that's, that's part of your family. Part of what we do here is drop breadcrumbs because yes. there's so much of our history that's fractured and, and, and misinformed. We've been misinformed. And, you know, for us to reclaim people, like I was so happy when you said you wanted to mention Bob Gibson today because I was like, who is going to do that? Well, <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting? I think this is, this is what's interesting. I think this is another thing that's interesting. There's going to be a lot of talk about Bob Gibson in the next few days on ESPN on the sports that it will be some talk among the sports writers which is why i'm i'm always i'm very much looking forward to my man bill roden i know bill roden gotta write something about uh bob gibson in fact i'll probably reach out to your brother roden at some point today and say hey, man i can't wait to see what you're gonna write about bob gibson uh, also howard bryant i'm sure howard's gonna write something as well yeah. you know uh i love that brother as well both got both his books over here looking at me how i mean um Bob Gibson, and there's a book by Jim Mudcat Grant. I couldn't put my hands on it because once I found out Gibson passed this morning, I'm like, oh man, let me. Let me 
uh, it may be in storage. Most of the stuff before 2010 is in storage, but there's a book called The Black Aces uh, by Jim Grant, Mudcat Grant, who was the first 20 game winner uh, of African descent in white major league baseball. And he chronicles like 19 of these pitchers. Many of them I knew growing up because I didn't get to see Bob Gibson in his prime, but as a child, and when, we, when I would finish cutting the grass at, at Mr. James' house, I drew a box on a cinder block building that was at the end of his yard. It was a black barbershop. Brother had a barbershop in a little building. And I drew a, I took chalk and drew a, I drew a rectangle and I would stand back 60 feet and took a tennis ball. And for years, I would try to hit that square, hit that square, hit that square. Can I spread my fingers right and throw the curveball? Can I put them together on the right side and throw that hard slider? And then, so when I got to high school, I had never played organized baseball, but I had thrown in that square so much that I made the Hillsborough High School baseball team as a freshman, just from playing pickup in the neighborhood and throwing into that square and ended up being the captain of the baseball team, in fact. But I had never played organized baseball. I'm just with Mr. James, and we watching games, listening to games, watch the Saturday game of the week, listen to the legends. And when the book, The Black Aces, came out about 12, 13 years ago, Grant chronicles all those black pitchers, many of whom came up when I was a kid watching. Vida Blue for the Oakland A's, the great Vida Blue out of Louisiana. Um, Ferguson Jenkins, Afro-Canadian, who won 20 games. He chronicles all the, play the pitchers that won 20 games who were black, except... This is the problem. You know, I love the books, an incredible book. All these cats are in there. James Rodney Richard, J.R. Richard, out of, you know, out of Texas, Houston, who ended up homeless. And all these guys got biographies, by the way. James Rodney Richard had a stroke, you know, but, but he, six foot six guy was incredible, but, you know, his health failed him. Um, who is not in the Black Aces are the Africans who spoke Spanish. And that's heartbreaking because, you know, we Black. We black people. So Grant, I don't, it wasn't deliberate, but Louis Tiant out of Cuba, the great winner for the Boston Red Sox was like, I'm not in the book. You know, Juan Marshall, who still walks the earth for the San Francisco Giants, played Willie Mays in them. Juan Marshall is not in the book. He won 24 games one year and 22 games. I mean, all this before the first African born in the United States won in white major league baseball. So they're not in the in there. And what, in fact, let me just show you the shirt I have on because I wore it. I went and got, pulled it out because of Bob Gibson. I like this shirt because when I wear this shirt, I ask students, I say, find the Latino in this shirt. Now, many young people don't really follow baseball, so they guess. This, of course, is the great Henry Aaron, the hammer, a contemporary of, uh, of Bob Gibson, a little older, still alive in Atlanta, number 44 for the Braves. So I grew up listening to baseball games after he left Milwaukee and went, 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 went to Atlanta. The great Willie Mays, Willie Howard Mays, out of Mobile, Alabama. Um, both these Negroes, Alabama Negroes, by the way. Willie Mays, who played for the Birmingham Black Barons. And Henry Aaron played for the Indianapolis Clowns. These are Negro League veterans. <laughs> understand? So they broke all the records in Major League Baseball, home runs, crowns and stuff. But they came out the Negro Leagues. And then finally, here's the brother out of Carolina, Puerto Rico, the great Roberto Clemente Walker. Roberto Clemente, who of course died in 1972 trying to get uh, 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 earthquake relief to Nicaragua. The plane crashed in the sea and never recovered his body. He's an ancestor. This brother right here, but this is at one of the All-Star games. They're all black. And so, in fact, Bob Gibson, who came out of 
Omaha, Nebraska, 10 years after another brother that Les Payne writes about, Les Payne's daughter, after he made transition, Les Payne's daughter made it her life's work, part of her life's work, to finish Les Payne's final project. This month of October, about midway through the month, will be published a book called The Dead Are Arising. Mm. The book takes its title from an old saying that folks in the Nation of Islam who are watching already know, they already smile. Because people in the nation, when they out there trying to get black people to wake up, the lost found Nation of Islam, say y'all lost in the hells of North America, in the wilderness of North America, but don't worry about it. Master Farad Muhammad came and then he left Elijah Muhammad and then said all the rest of you. So we here to wake y'all up. The dead are arising. Because if you don't know, you dead. But we are gonna bring you back to life. The dead are arising is a book that Les Payne for almost three decades worked on, which is a biography of Malcolm X. Les Payne interviewed Malcolm X's brothers and sisters, everybody alive who knew Malcolm, people who was in the nation, people who he came, people he talked to, people in Philly. So he, so the book advertises itself as having all this stuff that people have not seen. Now I know that our friends in the Europeans, uh, uh, in, in white publishing industry and white academy, uh, tried to wanted to make Manny Marable's book the primary book. And you know, I've read, of course, that book several times. Had high school students read it in Philly, and I knew Manny Marable, good brother, great great brother, in fact. But let's be very clear. This book, I'm really looking forward to. In fact, I've read a few of the preview pages, but now I'm just waiting, waiting for the book to come. Because Les Payne starts the book, chapter one. I was able to read chapter one. Les Payne starts the book in Omaha, Nebraska. Why? Because the one sibling of Malcolm's that I got a chance to meet, in Detroit, actually, Philbert, his big brother, the oldest. Phil was a beautiful brother, quiet. He worked for the phone company in Detroit. He came down to a conference we were having in Detroit one time, and we just all sat around just listening to him. Just a beautiful brother. You get a feeling of the little family from Philbert. Philbert, one of his earliest memories as a five-year-old, he was five. Les Payne starts the book with the clan coming to their front door. His father, Earl, is off preaching somewhere. Earl was a Garveyite in Marcus Garvey's organization, Universal Negro Improvement Association. You know he's from Georgia. His mother, Louise, whose people are from Grenada, who grew up in, between there and Canada, was also in the UNIA, a Garveyite. She answers the door. She is full pregnant. The baby in her womb is Malcolm. When she opens the door, Brianna Taylor, my God, when she opens the door to the clan, in the middle of the night, where your husband? Philbert says, I remember my mother telling them, get up, get up, get away from here. I remember my mother talking to them, standing up straight, like, what are y'all? Get off my point. I mean, I'm saying, whoa, boy. I mean, my God. Philbert said, I'm a little boy. I think Yvonne was the next oldest. Anyway, sitting there, she, he, he's looking at the, and then, oh, I'm sorry, and I'll end with this, because I, I can't wait for everybody. We had to read The Dead, Dead Are Rising. He spends the rest of the chapter talking about the place where that confrontation took place. It was on the outskirts of a little town called Omaha, Nebraska. See, Malcolm X was born in Omaha. Malcolm X was born in Omaha in part because Earl had been married before. Earl married Louise. He had older 
children. Ella, this who Malcolm, remember Malcolm got sent to Boston, live with his half, what he called half sister. But but Earl said, you don't call us half sisters and brothers. You that's your sister, that's your brother. I mean, so in other words, you know, black people all this half stuff. Yeah, we had to make up play dad, play cousin. Man. But when it comes to brother and sister, that's my sister. I don't care if we got two different fathers. Anyway, the point is that he took Louise to Georgia to meet the family. And his first wife's family's like, what the hell? No, no. So the family was like, bro, you can't stand out here. You and Louise are beautiful. We love y'all, but you're a little too mouthy. In fact, y'all both kind of, you know, we need to send y'all somewhere else. So his old Earl's older brother got a job at Omaha. So they sent Earl and Louise to Omaha. They were part of that same migration. Bob Gibson's family ended up. So I'm sitting here thinking, wow, two of the most beautiful black men of the 20th century, one who we know because of his involvement in politics. And it's a, one who, if you ain't in sports, into sports, and particularly baseball, you might not know, but they both had the same spirit. Bob Gibson and Malcolm X, both from Omaha, Nebraska. So anyway, let me finish on, on, on Bob. Gibson, following his brother, who was a great athlete, Gibson goes to Creighton University in Nebraska, the first black athlete to play basketball and baseball. He loved them both, although he loved basketball more. He graduates 1957, I think it is. He then goes, signs a contract with the St. Louis Cardinals because Jack Robinson and them to kick in the door. Henry Aaron is now with the Milwaukee Braves. Willie Mays is going to be with the, New York, is with the New York Giants. So now a Bob Gibson, a young boy, can play in white Major League Baseball, even though it killed the Negro Leagues, which is a whole nother story. We got we to do one on the Negro Leagues. So yeah, we really do. So, so um, he's then playing in the farm system of the St. Louis Cardinals. At the same time, he's picking up a little change on the side, playing basketball with this professional team. Some people may have heard of it before. They used to be known as the New York Renaissance. But by the time Gibson played with them in the offseason for a little spirit change, they were called the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> Bob Gibson played with the Harlem Globetrotters on the side while he was coming through the baseball because basketball was the one he really loved. Gibson made the St. Louis Cardinals and for 17 years, Bob Gibson won 251 games in the major leagues. Bob Gibson struck out 3,117 uh, batters in the major leagues. Bob Gibson uh, won the Cy Young Award twice. He won nine gold gloves. He was on the all-star team eight times. Bob Gibson in 1967 won his first World Series. He missed two months of the season. Why? Because on the mound, Bob Gibson was known for pitching high and hard fastball. So if you're standing here getting ready to bat, and you think you're too close up on the plate, Bob Gibson gonna put one right under your chin. And if you don't, you gotta lean back. Y'all baseball players know that. If a fastball's coming high and hard, you lean back. Why? Because if you come this way, you might, they may be taking you to the moor. <laughs> so don't try to duck, you know, but he had a sharp curve, he had that slider, so intimidating. His white friends on the on the ball team, Tim McCarver, who was this catcher and all this kind of thing, they said, man, Bob Gibson, hate. He, he, he don't just want, he, he hate losing and he don't talk to the players on the other team. He don't care if it's the off season. He don't talk to us. We can, hey, Bob, Bob don't say that it's time to pitch. I mean, you just look about, Bob Gibson got that Malcolm X up in him, right? So anyway, he missed two seasons, in, uh, two months of the 1967 season and came back to win the last game in the World Series to beat the Boston Red Sox. Why is that important? Because he missed two months in the of the season. Because this brother right here, Roberto Clemente, hit a line drive back at the mound and broke his leg. So anyway, I mean, so the next year, Bob Gibson pitched and won three games in the World Series. It takes four to win. 
he he pitched and won three games in the seven game series against the Detroit Tigers. So Bob Gibson, who made transition, uh, was very quiet. Because remember, this is where I'll make these other connections. Remember, Bob Gibson had a teammate who was also an all-star, who was a center fielder. But during this time, they had no free agency. Once you signed with a team, you belonged to that team. That's why when Jackie Robinson, when the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to L.A., Jack Robinson said, I don't want to go to L.A. And so the owner of the Dodgers was like, that's all right, we'll trade you to the Giants. He said, no, I'm not, you know what, I'm retiring. Because he had no rights. He had signed with the Dodgers. He belonged to the Dodgers. So the reason that you never saw Jackie Robinson in a uniform other than the Brooklyn Dodgers, because he told the white dudes that owned the team, I'm not going to L.A. and you're not trading me. I'm retiring. That's why. So at any rate, they tried to trade. In fact, they did trade Bob Gibson's teammate, Kurt Flood. And Kurt Flood, of course, challenged it. Kurt Flood made it possible for every free agent that will ever sign a multi-million dollar deal in professional sports because he was the one that challenged it, took it all the way to the Supreme Court, lost. But soon after that, free agency became a thing. Kurt Flood wrote a, a, wrote a couple, wrote an autobiography. Bob Gibson wrote two autobiographies. In fact, I, I got them, but they're, they're in storage as well. But Kurt Flood said something interesting uh, about Bob Gibson because Kurt Flood was a race man. Mm. But Kurt Flood also, in terms of like being rah-rah, in terms of black nationalism, he wasn't like that. So Kurt Flood wrote in his autobiography, and there are a number of good books on him. A Well-Paid Slave is probably the best book, which is a story of how Kurt Flood fights for AIDS. You ask yourself, what is Bob Gibson saying while Kurt Flood is out here challenging everybody? Because he don't want to leave the St. Louis area. He's a painter. He's got some other stuff going. His wife got good stuff. He likes St. Louis in terms of the black community, this kind of thing. Oh, by the way, Donnie Hathaway's birthday was there for yesterday. He was born in Chicago, but he was raised in St. Louis in the car projects. His grandmama the one who taught him how to sing and do all that stuff. But at any rate, St. Louis is an important city. So um, Flood says this in his autobiography. He says, you know, I don't know why we have to, you know, talk about Black people being superior. You know, I don't know if we have to go that far. You know why he said that? He had just come back from a meeting a Nation of Islam meeting. Who took him to the Nation of Islam meeting? Bob Gibson. Now, Bob Gibson had, <laughs> in St. Louis, Bob Gibson from the same city as Malcolm X. Bob Gibson had a reputation for not talking politics as an athlete. Not really. He didn't get too much. But he was incredibly proud. When you read about Bob Gibson and when you read what Bob Gibson said about himself, he didn't take no stuff off nobody. In fact, Bob Gibson said in 1969, it was the 100th anniversary of white Major League Baseball, so they invited us all to the White House. And he said, I went, Nixon was president, I'm no Nixon fan. He said, I'm in line to go into the White House to shake Nixon's hand and have these pictures taken. And I got right up to the door and I was like, I can't do this. So he said, I went back out on the curb. Gibson is writing this in his first autobiography, uh, From Ghetto to Glory. That was the first one there, too. Gibson says, I'm standing on the curb waiting for the bus that brought us over. So it'll pick us up, take us back. And I looked around, and there was only one other person standing out there with me. Jackie Robinson. Mm. He said, Jackie Robinson, who had supported Nixon. Because he said Nixon was better on civil rights in previous years, but who had had his eyes open to who Nixon was. And remember, all people say, oh, Republicans, Democrats, we need people in both parties. Jack Robinson was Republican. Jackie Robinson also said, wait a minute, what, what you, who is this Barry Goldwater? Oh, what the hell? Oh, I can't support y'all. Y'all now becoming what we know now they are. In fact, they are the white nationalist party. It used to be the Democrats. 
So Republicans say, well, the Democratic Party is the one. Yeah, they were. And guess what? All them racists left the Democratic Party, and now they with you. So go read Galatians and you know, Ephesians and be quiet and go read some Yoga Proverbs, because guess what? You reap what you sow. But at any rate, he said, I'm standing here. I'm looking at Jackie Robinson. He says, the only time I ever got a chance to spend time with Jack Robinson, he said, but the two of us talked for over an hour. He said, you know what I found out that day? Jackie Robinson believed what I believe. And now, white sports writers never knew because these brothers and sisters, and at that time, almost exclusively brothers. I mean, you had the Althea Gibsons, of course, and you had, but you know, these black men in professional sports, if they didn't talk to the press, these white sports writers made them out of surly and those guys. They they tried to call Roberto Clemente Bobby for years in Pittsburgh. He refused to let them do it. And they said, Why? My name is Roberto. You know, my parents named me Roberto. No. And they said, Oh, well, he's he's sullen. He doesn't want to talk. No, y'all not gonna disrespect me. Bob Gibson, they knew better than even come up to Gibson on the day he pitched. You know, you don't even talk to Bob He might pitch you in your face. But on, on, on the political, he's not saying much, but underneath. This is a guy who's very clear with the race. And he said, me, and then I talked to Robinson, find out me and Robinson think the same. 1974 World Series, Robinson, no, 1975 World Series. No, no, I was right. I could check it. 1970, well, you, you can check it too, Robinson. I think Robinson passed in 75. He was at the World Series. His wife's still alive, Rachel, to this day. He says, I'll be very much more happy when I see a black face over there uh, uh, um, managing in, 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 in Major League Baseball. Frank Robinson came, now an ancestor, came shortly after Robinson died. But in his autobiography published... Oh, no. Robinson died October 24th, 1972. Oh, God. I'm really off this morning. Oh, you know, I'm thinking about the Oakland A's. That's what I'm thinking about. Anyway, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. Because it was that World Series. Robinson didn't live much longer after that. 1972. I never had it made. I get the, got the book over. In fact, I got one that Rachel Robinson signed. Um, I never had it made. He says, I don't stand for the national anthem. I don't salute the flag. This man's a veteran. This man's a Buffalo soldier. A lot of people don't know that Jay Robinson's a Buffalo soldier. He said, I don't stand for the national anthem. I don't salute the flag. He said, from the moment I was born, from the moment of my birth, all through the time I spent in the Major Leagues to this day, I never had it made. Uh-uh. I'm a black man in white America. My people came out of slavery. Now, y'all talking about Colin Kaepernick? Go back and read what Jack Roosevelt Robinson wrote in his autobiography, published posthumously. That's probably how I had the numbers, too, jumbled in my head. 1972, he made transition. Bob Gibson said, me and Jackie Robinson, I talked to him that day that they had us up there going to do this skin and grin for Nixon. Shout out uh, Tim Scott and all them cats for you skin and grin. So I, I found out I believe what Jackie Robinson believed what I believe. Finally, on Bob Gibson. The last interview I read on Bob Gibson was published in June of this year. Mike Lupica, again, somebody I know you know. Was, I know well. You know. <laughs> Mike Lupica interviews Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson got diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer last year. He said, and, and, and Mike Lupica is writing about Bob Gibson with the same type of passion, admiration that you often see uh, white kind of uh, folks who have made a living off of black bodies. Right about, you know, I read Bob Gibson's autobiography when I was 12 years old and I read him and I idolized him. So, you know, I'm cast like that, Mitch Alpham, you know, I mean, hey, all due respect because y'all are worshiping your heroes as our people die in the streets. But at any rate, he interviews Bob Gibson this year, short before he made transition. He says, you know, do you think things have changed? Bob Gibson said, no. 
He said, do you think the death of George Floyd will change anything? Bob Gibson said, I'm hopeful it will. But you know what? The fact that I got to be hopeful that it will after all these years, he says, it makes me angry. It makes me sad. He said, you know, I, I tried not to be overtly political during my career, but I'm, let me be very clear. No, this is in this will not stand. This is the great Bob Gibson that my uh, my play granddad, uh, Mr. James, used to have me out there throwing into that chalk, uh, thinking that I could intimidate him. My cap pulled over my head and my arm flailing. And I said, I'm going to take your head off with this tennis ball. And uh, Bob Gibson, like so many others of our heroes, his name should be elevated. And on a day like today, I feel like we should, you just want to stop and pay, pay homage to him and to Roberto Clemente and to all those other cats. That and Jack, well, I'm saying, and let me, let me thank you for that because, you know, um, the dual consciousness that Du Bois talks about, and I want to thank you too, because, um, you know, for a great part of my career, you were bringing me back to the Daily News when I was wholesalely unconscious, you know, uh, navigating the system, but at the same time, mildly conscious, conscious enough to, to pull different people to the side and, and uh, never waver, you know, like the night that Amadou Diallo got shot, and just mm. all fighting. But I realized that I was also kind of wearing a little bit of a mask that I no longer feel like I, I and, and people have to do things for their commerce. I get, you know, the job market and making white people comfortable. Can You know, if you don't do that, then you don't always uh, get a seat at the table. And I'm really hopeful for the day that we start making our own tables and not depending on that. So I'm glad that you brought up that Gibson might not have been overtly. Robinson, definitely. A lot of people thought it was a sellout, but wasn't. And we're in a space now where you, you cannot, I think, be lukewarm. We're going to go back to the Bible. You'll be fat, right? I think that Come we're in a place right now where we need people to stand up. Yeah. As you know, there are a lot of distractions right now in the comments. People are mad because uh, folks coming in. Because, uh, you know, we're, we're messing up the sentiment. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful you are, thing. I told y'all. It's a beautiful thing. The haters got to go. So let's talk about this for a second. Um, you know, I, I was concerned because the Proud Boys got an, uh, a message from their their leader uh, during the debate this week um, before he got COVID. And hmm. uh, membership in the Proud Boys shot up exponentially. They are they are very clear about what their mission is, and it's violence, right? Yeah. And I said, you know, the, the Civil War is still being fought. We we thought we thought it ended. It didn't end, which is why the Confederate flags you know, wave proudly, which is why people are doing their militia thing and they're prepping, they've been prepping for the, since man, even before Manson, Manson wanted a race war, you know, this has always kind of been on the forefront because they never stopped fighting the civil war. We are the ones that put down our weapons and thought it was over. It's never <laughs> over. Right. So we're not ready. So I was saying, we're not ready for what's coming, what I think is coming, what people want to come. And I, I got up this morning and I said to you um, before we got on, because we, we didn't have really, a, we never have a roadmap really. We're going to talk about it. We're going to take questions. We're going to probably talk about this and then start answering the questions. I have some from Twitter and some from YouTube, the comments, and then there'll be questions here. But I said, you know, what Africans have done, Africans can do, that I'm quoting actually uh, Afro State of Mind, Larry Daniel Favors, who's probably quoting somebody else, but Lurie, yeah, a, well, Mark and Garvey. Garvey said that. Okay, well, thank you. All right, and and well, Garvey we, and Lurie. I'm sorry, that's right. No, yes, we're all, we're all. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. We ain't we ain't come here. No, original. 
you know, we are all, like you said, we are leaning on ancestors and allowing them to pour, uh, pour forth through us. And I was thinking, you know, we're going to go all the way back to Africa, maybe Shaka Zulu today, maybe the Candaces. And you said, what about this, sis? And, and I was like, perfect, perfect. So talk about this book that you just found uh, that just came out. Yes. Yes. Bring it home. Yes. Karen, first of all, we look, as you said, breadcrumbs this morning, right? Because I, I just started reading this book. I haven't had it a week. Um, but before I mention it, I should, this is a book that Colin, uh, Colin Woodard just wrote. Well, not just wrote. Yeah, just wrote, 2020. It's called Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of the United States Nationhood, Colin Woodard. The reason I'm mentioning it is because, to your point, they never stopped fighting the Civil War. This is a book on the struggle between um, thinkers, political leaders, historians, novelists who struggled over the idea of America. He says, you know, America, they argued, had a God-given mission to lead humanity toward freedom, equality, and self-government, and they found common purpose in fealty to those ideas. And then he talks about how this nationalist story, this emerging nationalist story, well, I'll just read it. This emerging nationalist story was immediately and powerfully contested by another set of intellectuals and firebrands who argued that the United States was indeed an ethnostate, proud boys, the homeland of the allegedly superior Anglo-Saxon race. Their vision helped create a new federation, the Confederacy that led to a bloody civil war. While defeated on the battlefield, they later won the war of ideas by placing Woodrow Wilson in first, by placing Woodrow Wilson in the White House, then going on, and he goes on, he traces this history of the fight to narrate what America is. Now, that has the effect of doing two things. Number one, it means that you have cultivated millions of others who won't say it out their mouth in front of you, but who do say it in a kind of subtle way, that they believe that. Donald Trump did not win three votes. Otherwise, he would be president of the United States. He won enough votes to put it enough close enough to steal. People say, well, Hillary Clinton won by three million votes. Let's slow down. Say that again. Hillary Clinton won the election by more than three million popular votes. Right. Meaning what? Tens of millions of people voted for Donald Trump. Who are these people? If it was only white people voting in the United States, there'd never be another non-Republican winner in a federal election. Why? Because... If they, you got the overt Confederates, and then you got the people who say, well, I'm against racism, and I define racism as people attacking people because of their race. But do I believe that this is a superior civilization? Well, yes, of course. It's called American exceptionalism. And so even today with the Trump thing, uh, I was reading something Damon Young wrote in The Root, and Damon Young had me cracking up because, you know, Damon Young was like, he started with, we should pray for them because they're human and we're Americans. And then he has an all caps of paragraph. No, I'm glad. I'm glad like so-and-so revenge and nothing you could do bring harm. And then he says at the end, oh no, but of course, no, we shouldn't do that. In other words, no, he looking, he's, he's making a joke. He's saying, these are the things black people are not going to say. I'm saying, but brother, you're still framing the whole thing in terms of race. And here's the problem. And here's what leads us to what you had the revelation for this morning, this book that I'm about to show. I was reading another book. Oh, I don't think I have this one. Yeah, here it is, because I was reading the other day. Uh, Norman Potteretz. You probably know Norman Potteretz. I ain't saying nobody should buy this book. He's one of them books that I bought. You're not supposed to buy. But anyway, don't waste your money. But at any rate, Norman Potteretz, who is, he, he writes a letter to James Baldwin after James Baldwin writes to fire next time. 
And in the letter, which is never published, because this guy here, Thomas Jeffers, went through all the Potterettes papers. So he's looking at the unpublished stuff. And he's saying Potterettes is critiquing James Baldwin because he's like, you know, you are around Ellison. I kind of like y'all. I like Ellison more. He's a moderate. You, I mean, I understand. I'm learning. But let me ask you, why should I, as a Jew, be accused of hiding behind my whiteness? I get that critique. I understand it. But then if you, as a Black, come out and say something, I can't say nothing about it without being a racist. And so he says, why should we be trapped by biology into this racial thinking? I agree with Potterettes on that. And it made me start thinking about how we frame so much of how we think and respond to how whiteness has constructed our identities. So I get what Brother Damon Young is trying to do. He's saying, he's saying Black people are really like, perhaps secretly we're celebrating. Yeah, maybe, because some of us have gotten pulled up into this definition of Blackness that has us always responding to whiteness. But many of us haven't. Donald Trump got COVID. Oh, well. See, that's an African response. Good, I hope you know it. No, no. See, they go responding like an American Negro trying to, or, oh, I hope that they get, okay, here we go, respond. Race is the construct that pulls us into it, and we be responding without pausing, stopping, thinking. So victories, we often look at now as bleak. We're not going to be able to win. So this morning, an ancestor whispered in your ear, and this way here is where the mind blowing comes, right? Because then he like said, I'm going to hurry up with this so we can have, because this is one we're going to have to spend a lot more time on. So y'all watching this live, thank God. I know it's probably a couple thousand of y'all looking now, and then so many people are going to watch it later. Thank you all for building this platform and continuing this work, please. And you guys support this work. So, you know, subscribe, tell your friends, because we're having these conversations with a purpose. So Karen, uh, Professor Hunter uh, calls me this morning and says, you know, you know, we often talk about, you know, being you know, people losing hope and this kind of thing. And, you know, we need some victories. You know, I was thinking about some of the strategic fighters in the past, non-white folk like Sun Tzu and others. So, you know what, what do you think about maybe lifting up for a few minutes the name of somebody who fought back and won and use strategies and tactics. I couldn't do nothing but lower my head. See, you couldn't see me, Karen. You was on the phone. When you said that, I'm listening to it. And then when you said, I was like, I started <laughs> laughing. <laughs> because the ancestors whispered that in your ear this morning. Not even a couple of hours before we started. And I had just ventured forth with my mask. You know, I'm masked and gloved up. So I'm in the bookstores now, looking, doing what I'm doing. So one of my little spots is a brother. I love this brother. You know, anytime you got black people working in bookstores, you know, either them girls need the job, like we all need jobs, or they book people. This bookstore I go to in Georgetown, this brother is a book person. So you be going there and sometimes I go in there, you know, and that's social distancing, let four people in the store at a time. But I go there because a lot of times books that are not yet out, they'll have them first. So I'm over there, you know, and then I go in there. I go in there when ain't nobody else coming anyway. Odd hours, you know, so we can sit and talk. Because then, you know, like you said, we got uh, Jacob Carruthers, my man, my Jagna. Jacob Carruthers once wrote an essay called Black Talk and the White Question. You know how black folks, where everybody's around, it's like, ha, ha, ha. And then everybody drift off, just you and that other black person. Then y'all have black talk. Then the white people come back and it's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Right? But you had them few seconds of black. So I go when Joe is, you know, ain't nobody else than me and Joe have black talk, right? So he's undoing boxes. 
he undoes he, un, he unpacks the boxing man they got like the stuff that you don't really see a lot of other places stuff from other countries you know academic press so he pulls this book out black spartacus this ancestor whispered in your ear karen oh you watch this he's walking in the garden he was doing wherever you, wherever that ancestor said you know what talk about me <laughs> you understand so this brother here toussaint l'ouverture the saint you see two saints saying in his name l'ouverture who he renamed himself this is a brand new book just came out black spartacus the epic, epic life of toussaint l'ouverture by sudir Hazarasing. see mm. Hazarasing. Hazarasing is from meridius that's about 1200 miles off the Mozambique coast in Africa. We know the little island on the other side of Madagascar, which unfortunately too many of our children think is just populated by animals because of Disney. But Madagascar, Africa, you know, Meridius, offshore Africa. These are islands off the coast of Africa. The big one, of course, being Madagascar. And then you go further, about halfway, about 600 miles, keep going into the Indian Ocean and you get to where he's born. So this is the latest of many books on Tucson. My favorite is the Black Jacobins, which I couldn't put my hands on. I probably got six copies around here somewhere, but I couldn't find it because that ancestor whispered in your ear so close to now that I said, okay, this we're gonna have to spend a lot more time on Tucson. This is the Black Jacobins reader, however, which is very good actually. Um, uh, Charles Fordix and Christian Hugsberg edited it and Robert Hill wrote, the, uh, wrote a, 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 a forward. That's a, that's a Toussaint representation of him there, the Black Jacobins. But the book, The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, there's a good interview with C.L.R. James in here from Trinidad, Cyril, Cyril Lionel Robert James. Folks want to really get that. Because he wrote that in the 1930s. He actually wrote it as a play first. Paul Robeson played Toussaint in, uh, in, in, in the play in, in England. Uh, but then it became the book, The Black Jacobins, the story of the Haitian Revolution. But Karen, in terms of your vision, this morning of, you know, why don't we lift up Black folks who made strategic decisions with the idea of winning, and not just winning as individuals, but bringing all of us along together. And I thought that it was good for us that, that Toussaint is an example of that, because Toussaint's complicated history, which is why, you know, um, this guy right here, um, Hazari Singh. Hazari Singh is not um, not a black nationalist. You know, I'm only about third way through the book, but he goes through. Toussaint was a was a prodigious writer. He dictated. He, he had three secretaries in the 1790s while they fighting the Haitian Revolution in Africa, and he's dictating all the time. So he goes through the archives, many of which really haven't been touched or have been discussed in like specialty journals. He brings all that stuff together and what emerges is a lot of the Toussaint we knew and it reinforces the complexity of who Toussaint Louverture is. Now, and this is the other thing that I, I like you said, we, before we started y'all, you know, Karen and I, you know, we'll touch base and then and I'll start talking. She said, no, no, wait, save it for when it's live. Okay, Karen. So are, are we all hearing this at the same time? Karen too. Today's the 3rd of October, right? October 3rd, 1935, Italy declared war on Ethiopia. It's the beginning of the Italian-Ethiopian War. Just like Toussaint, we're gonna to talk about in a second for a few minutes, the Haitian Revolution 1791 to 1804, 
Toussaint is dead by the time the Haitian Revolution takes place because he's chasing a ghost. We're going to talk about that in two in terms of book recommendations, two other books. But I'm going to mention this other book because this is the anniversary of the Italy's invasion of Ethiopia. I think about my man, Haile Garima, the great Ethiopian filmmaker who made uh, a beautiful documentary called um, Adwa because the uh, Italians tried that before. And in 1897, Menelik II was the emperor talk about the Kebra and the gas. One of these days, we're going to get that Queen of Sheba story out. So, uh, you know, in that royal line of Solomon, as they would say in Ethiopia, Menelik and them defeat, defeat the Italians at the Battle of Adwa. And it sends a message to the whole black world because every time Ethiopia wins, going back to that book, the Bible, as we kind of draw ancestors, don't make no mistake, draw, draw this stuff together. One of the other stories that black people picked out of that big book was in Psalms. The, the, the verse in Psalms that says, uh, Ethiopia shall stretch forth its hands unto God and princes shall come out of Egypt. They took Ethiopia or Abyssinia, also as it's known, as the name of black victory. That's why you have so many Abyssinian Baptist churches, including the, the big one in uh, New York, Adam Clayton Powell Sr., Adam Clayton Powell Jr., and I resist the urge to go get their autobiographies because Sr. wrote an autobiography too. I found it in a little, especially shop in New Orleans about 20 years ago. It's in the other room because the Harlem riots take place and Adam Clayton Powell Sr. is writing about that. But the pastors of Abyssinian Baptist Church. So, you know, butts and all them cats. There's a lot of Abyssinian Baptist churches in part because Black people in the United States took Abyssinia or Ethiopia as a proxy for the whole continent of Africa. So African redemption, the idea of us winning as a people was written into the names of the churches. You understand? And when war was declared, remember 1897, 1896, 1897, to the Ethiopians, Haile Selassie. They say, you know, Haile Selassie, who became the emperor, is the line of Judah, direct descendant of Solomon, the Kepra and the Gast become the, uh, the uh, and these are the three, the three versions, the three books on it that I, like, I went from one to three now. So, because when we talk about it, you know, I'm, I'm starting to go around the rooms and get, get pull my Kepra and the Gast for that discussion. We're going to have the Queen of uh, uh, Sheba. All that stuff is the birthplace of Rastafarianism. The name Ras. Tafari is the Ethiopian royal name. It becomes the name of the religion. Bob Marley and them come through. But on the anniversary, as we go back to Tucson, on the anniversary of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, the Ethiopia, Italian-Ethiopian War, 1935 to 1941, which we can talk about a whole nother time, Bob Marley's song, War, is taken from Haile Selassie's plea to the League of Nations. Like, what the hell, y'all gonna let you, until the philosophy that leaves one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently abandoned, everywhere is war. I mean, that's a, that's a speech Haile Selassie gives, telling these white people, get your boy, before we had to get him. Ethiopia inspires the entire diaspora. Talk about winning. And so when you asked me this morning, you know, we need some, we want to talk about winning, we want to talk about strategies and tactics for us as a group collectively. The Italian-Ethiopian War that started on this day in 1935 inspired Black people around the world, so much so that Black people in the United States, for example, in Harlem, signed up to fight for Ethiopia. They wanted to go overseas and fight for Ethiopia because there's a Spanish Civil War where they're letting people do that from America. So they said, we Black. I said, but you're not Black. I mean, you're not Ethiopian. I am Abyssinian. I'm from Abyssinia. No, we... What's your, well, I was born in Jamaica and I live in New York, but I want to fight for Abyssinia. What the hell? And that whole story 
that whole story of us saying we're going to be part of because anywhere they harmed in our world is harmed wherever we're from. We're going to Ethiopia to fight. That whole story is chronicled in William R. Scott's book, The Sons of Sheba's Race, African-Americans and the Italian-Ethiopian War, 1935 to 19- Look at that. Look at that. Ethiopia volunteers register here. These Negroes have signed up to go. They, they in New York. You understand? So William Scott's book, which this morning when you said, you know what, we need to talk about some victories. Neither of us had any idea, and I wouldn't have this book in my hand had I not gone looking for some more Toussaint books in another room. It was at the bottom of a stack, about eight rows deep. And I was, oh, oh! And I was, wait a minute. So I'm checking, wait, this is the anniversary. So you did that. Sorry. So now, Toussaint. Toussaint. When you and Black Spark is one of the things is Black Spark has a beautiful at the beginning chronology. So you know, folks who are looking on who will be looking at this later, you can kind of let me see if I can get it. You can kind of pause and look at how long it took. Toussaint was born in 1740 on a plantation. His parents had been enslaved, and so you see, this is very detailed. I'm not going to go through all this today. I'm just putting it here so that you all can see the kind of detailed life history that's written about in this book. Because what he's going to do is remind us, and then I'm gonna go, in fact, let me take the dust jacket off so I can do it a little quicker, but we can keep going. So you see, now this is, we're going on another page. You see, we still, 18, it's 1802, right? And so here is the page. Here's another page. Uh oh, hold on, son. <laughs> See, I'm having a kind of, wait. Yeah, that's where I'm going. You see, you go up here. May, you go over here. That, oh, I'm sorry, I did it backward. I did it backward. That's okay, y'all can pause. The way Africans and Arabs read, that's good. How about that? That's true, alhamdulillah, as the Muslims might say. No question. So we go here, and so I'm going to summarize Toussaint's life just for now. And then go to these two final books, which are the books, not this book. I mean, y'all get this book. I mean, some of y'all are rich. I'm not one of them rich Negroes. See, I got academic colleagues who they send books. I've never been one of those people. So, you know, I got a book, believe me, it came out of the blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> so anyway, so there's a, so the, um, then I'm going to stop with these two books. I'm going to end with these two books. But let me mention these things on the life of Toussaint. Toussaint born on that plantation in 1740, on the Breda estate, B-R-E-D-E. -E. 43 years before that, Spain had ceded the western third of Hispaniola, that whole island, because remember that's where Columbus got lost, bumped into. They call the whole thing Hispaniola. You know, this is their little Spain. They're gonna create Spain in the Western Hemisphere. Spain and Portugal, the first two out. You know, we talk about that another time, out of Europe pushing back to Moors, but anyway, you know. So Spain seeds the Western third, and I'm doing that curve because those of you who Haitian know, that's, that's the, that's, that third is Haiti. They spent, they seed that Western third to France because France coming in the region now. France got some other things they're going to try to pick up a little bit. I got my eye on the clock, so I won't go long on this. Um, 43 years later, Toussaint is born. 
Toussaint, 18 years, Toussaint's 18 years old when they, uh, the French killed Macandal. Some of y'all know Macandal. He's the leader of the first major revolution. The Haitians been trying to get free since the boats pulled up. They like the rest of us, except here's the problem. By the time you get to the Haitian revolution, they ain't but a handful of white people on the island. Anytime you find a place in the Western Hemisphere where we really outnumber white folks, you usually see rebellion. Points Coupe, Louisiana, Stono, South Carolina, the Haitian Revolution, and Jamaica. The Mar you know it. We gonna turn it up. Y'all not going And if we are outnumbered, this is why my sister, uh, oh man, who's out there in Oklahoma, my sister Honoré Jeffers. This is her book, The Age of Phyllis. Phyllis Wheatley is outnumbered in Boston. So she, her weapon becomes the pen. This is a beautiful, beautiful sister. Sister is a poet herself and a scholar. The Age of Phyllis is a beautiful book because she traces the humanity of uh, Phyllis Wheatley. She really does. Um, and it's very important to understand because, you know, this sister is just an amazing, amazing, amazing woman. And in fact, what- and thank, what, I just want to say thank you for that because I, I had, uh, you know, we all we all learned about Phyllis Wheatley in school during Black History Month, right? That was right. Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, Phyllis Wheatley. And then I got mad at Phyllis Wheatley because she was writing about this dark continent. And I was like, how do you know? You don't remember being on that slave ship. This is what you, and then they paraded her out, the president. And I felt like she was an agent to, to sanitize or to make, you know, make slavery palatable. So I got pissed off at her. So I'm glad that you're, you know, things are complicated. We can't just look at things through one lens, make a decision, have an opinion, and not allow ourselves to be rounded out. And, oh, Thank man. You. That's Thank right. That's right. No, no, Thank of course. Your spirit, listen, we all got the same impression because they didn't tell us about those. In fact, let me be very much more specific. Uh, as Honoré says, Honoré is like, we should refer to her as Phyllis Wheatley Peters. She was married. Phyllis Wheatley was married to a brother, brother named John Peters. And she only she died at 31. She was she became an ancestor at age 31. She was a little girl of six or seven years old when they put her on that boat. She probably spoke some Arabic. Wolof was probably her first language. And many of her poems, the scholars and, and you know, um, and Andre Jeffers is one as well. Decoding those poems, she's often engaged in a critique of the West. So yes, the dark continent and this kind of thing, but then she talks about I was snatched from Africa's fancy seat. I was snatched from a river where the sun rose. We pray toward the sun. She talking about making salat. She sneaks the Islam into the poems as well. It's, it's, she's complicated. And so, but what Honoré Jeffers always says is, Phyllis Wheatley did not choose the name Phyllis. The scholars often, and there's a couple of books on Phyllis, they debate back and forth. They think one of her names may have been Fatima because she was Muslim and Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad. They think maybe that was one of her names. But, but Honoré Jeffers, she didn't pick Phyllis and she didn't pick Wheatley, but she married John Peters. So she always calls her either Miss Phyllis or Miss Peters, you know, because Wheatley was the name of the family that had her enslaved. And people say, well, they all European names. Yes, but that European name Peters represents a union between a woman and a man that she entered willingly. So she made Peters her last name. So you're right, it's complicated, but we never get, we don't even get that. I'm sure there are people in here right now is like, Peter, I didn't know that. Right, because the curriculum, that's why I say that book on curriculum wars is so important. They fighting this war, union. The union don't include y'all, which is why I was saying Damon Young and them writing about this and saying, we glad, whatever. No, Potters is asking Baldwin why it always got to be about race. And it's got to be about race because in this society, you're not part of the union. You want to know how you're not? 
because this man got COVID-19. He's over at Walter Reed Hospital. If I can throw a rocket hit Walter Reed from where I'm sitting right now. And guess what? When they ask people, they say, well, you know, COVID really hasn't hit us hard. Guess what? Because when he was out there in Tulsa, Herman Cain was out there with no mask on and he died. You don't count him as a human, as Sylvia Winter, the great Cuban Jamaican scholar would say, there were no humans involved when it was us. So now you got it. And it's like, well, I don't see, you didn't even say a word about Herman Cain. Forget Herman Cain's ideology. I wish for you the same thing you wished for Herman Cain. But at any rate, Black Spartacus, Toussaint is born, he's 18 years old. He's 18 years old when Macandal is killed for trying to lead a revolution. He gets married, uh, his wife, Suzanne Baptiste, uh, they have a couple of children. Now, what's happening in France? France is gonna go through eventually the Haitian Revolution. You got abolitionists in France, 1788. Toussaint is now 28 years old. In February in France, they create the, the uh, liberal abolitionist society d'Ami de Noir in France, the Society of Friends of the Blacks. And, and they want to abolish slavery. And then in August, the French National Assembly adopts the, de the National Declaration of Man. This is 1789. Meanwhile, all these black people in Haiti are in enslavement and they are going to fight to liberate themselves because what they believe, the system they've created, this is very important for us, the spiritual cultural system they've created, we know it is something to this day. When you say it, it scares some black people because we've been trained, just like we've been trained to think differently about Phyllis Wheatley and everybody else. And we've been trained not to see the parts of Bob Gibson or people like that, that we don't, you know, they don't want us to see. We've been trained to be scared of anything African. Voodoo, voodoo, voodoo. In fact, last week, I was showing my students in my black aesthetics class, we were talking about voodoo. We were reading a chapter in another book on voodoo. And the thing I love about being at a HBCU is that if you've got a, a if you got a classroom of 30 people, you probably got somebody in there from the Caribbean or people from the Caribbean and somebody from the continent of Africa, and you can have a different conversation. So anytime I start talking about somewhere in the African world, I pause and I say, All right, who in here? Because we're on screens now. Who in here Nigerian? Who in here Haitian? Somebody pronounce this for me. And I had a Haitian sister get into this conversation and she helped us understand attitudes toward voodoo because she's back and forth between Haiti and oh I should pause here and say for as, as well that the city that Malcolm was born into the city that Bob Gibson was born into a hundred years last year they went through the red summer too and there was a lynching of a brother named Will Brown the the, the ancestors of the proud boys and all these other white nationalist terrorists and Donald J Trump and all these white nationalists and Abrams in the white nationalist party called for this young boy to be lynched because they said he raped a white woman. He he was they they pulled him out. They destroyed the city hall. They 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 smashed all the windows out. They assaulted the white police trying to guard him. They pulled him out. They killed him. They lynched him. And um, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago in my class at the law school, Howard Law School, because as I was talking about the Red Summer, one of the sisters unmuted herself and said, "Dr. Carr, when I was in undergrad, she's a law student at Howard. When I was in undergrad, we traveled from Omaha. I'm from Omaha." We traveled from Omaha to Montgomery, Alabama, to where Brian Stevenson has set up that memorial to those who were killed. Will Brent to bring dirt from Omaha, from where Will Brown was taken to the National Memorial because Will Brown's execution, very importantly in Omaha, they're now saying, oh, we're sorry, and this kind of thing. Y'all killed that man in Omaha. So anyway, it's important to always be in conversation with Black people, because I guarantee you somebody in this conversation now who's live, and I'm going to stop in a second, 
who's going to help us walk through these things and probably some Haitians as well. So if you're Haitian, you know this story. You know where I'm going with this. Let me wind it to a close because that'll give us plenty of time. I can't walk through all these pages, but what I'll say is Toussaint is born into a society that is overwhelmingly Black. The deeper you go into the Black community, the more you got people who have created this African way of knowing out of all the different places they came from in Africa will do. Then as you come up through the class structure in the Black community, you got some who are mixed race because these Frenchmen having sex with these with these Africans, and now you got this group, and I'll use the term they use only because they use that term mulatto, but mixed race. And then you've got these whites in France who want to abolish slavery because they caught up in what would become the French Revolution, 1789, and they want, so that is a back and forth tug and war. So how does that relate to 2020 as, as I continue through the life of Toussaint? We are caught in a, in a society with a lot of different forces being played. George Floyd is killed. You got a multiracial strike. All these white people come out of nowhere. Old white people, young white people, they want to organize, help Black Lives Matter. Let me give you some money. Let me put a sign up in my house. Black people are like, oh, y'all finally see us? Okay, well, let's get out here then. Y'all get in the front. Doesn't save you because you're in places like Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the white man commits white-on-white -white violence with the help of the white police, kills two white people. I mean, so all this is going on. Black people are, we're in this now, like, well, shit, what do we wait? Oh, how do we do it? Everybody slow down. Let's go to the past and see how to do this, what to do and what not to do. Toussaint is pulled into the revolution. In 1790, the French National Assembly grants full legislative power to Saint-Dominique and avoids the issue of rights of free people of color. The free people of color are the mixed race and other who are saying, I'm not enslaved in Haiti anymore. Because anytime these people go somewhere, they create a buffer class. I'm saying regardless of race. Some of these people, uh, are the white people saying, well, no, let's just let the system work. Let's just let the confirmation go forward. We, there are rules. There ain't no rules when it comes to white nationalist terrorism. Ask Ms. McConnell. I don't give a damn if the man's dead of COVID-19. Record the fact, you know, I don't care. Amy Comey was at that thing. One of the places he was at spreading that stuff was the announcement in the Rose Garden of the new appointee for the uh, for, for the Supreme Court. She comes out had it. Well, she had it already. Well, she came out and said she didn't have it. I don't trust nothing none of them say. And I'm thinking, wait, you had it and recovered? And we didn't know about it until we saw you stand up in Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, who now says he has it. First of all, I don't trust nothing none of y'all say ain't when well, no, i'm sorry that's second that's second first of all you're a footnote in my history all y'all are distraction <laughs> so let's, let's continue because this is what Toussaint finds out right or, or, or what he pays for then october 1790 now we're doing the man who was born in 1740 Toussaint some is 50 years old when there's an attempt at another revolution uh, another iteration of the revolution by a dude named vincent Oge in the north right they execute him in 1791. The French National Assembly tells Saint-Dominique, this is what they call Haiti at the time, Saint-Dominique. They tell them, you know what? We're gonna give you a veto over colonial legislation. What does that mean? Well, we're gonna, you have an assembly there in Saint-Dominique. We're gonna give you a veto over any legislation we pass in France as it relates to the colonies, uh, to your colony. You say, okay. Because the assembly in, in Haiti is controlled by the handful of white people. And what happens? In July 1791, they create a new assembly and it's dominated by white supremacists. Meaning what? You got an overwhelmingly black country, colony, 
you got a handful of white people trying to rule it. I want y'all to make this parallel now because between, between 2020 and 2050, it's going to become a majority non-white place. So then we'll run it. Now you better go look and learn from history. You can have the numbers, but if you don't care, well, anyway, we continue. They say, then they try to crack down everything. By, by December of 1791, Toussaint Louverture has joined the rebels. He becomes the secretary of the rebel leader, Biasu. He is he's in the revolution now. Toussaint, Toussaint is 51 years old. So we talk about, yeah, this is a youth movement. We got to get our young people. Yes, we do have to get our young people involved. Toussaint's 51 years old when he came over on the side of the revolution. They didn't kill the first iteration. Bukman Dutty, who they killed, was a voodoo priest. He and the sister, the Mambo, have a famous uh, uh, a famous ritual they engage in that year at Boyce Kama. And I know, though you Haitians, y'all know I'm mispronouncing it. That's why I, well, I tell my sister, hey, man, tell me, Boyce Kama. At Boyce Kama, they have a ritual where they go through this Vodun ritual, and at the height of it, Bookman gives a prayer that Haitians all know. Cast down the image of the white man's God who has brought down your tears for so long and listen to liberty that lives in all our hearts. And so, <laughs> you know, and then he's, okay, now the revolution, 1791, going to jump off. They catch and kill Bookman. Toussaint throws in. Say it again. No, oh, go ahead. Oh, yes, and, and, and so the revolution enters another phase. What does that tell us? Revolution don't happen in one day. Sometimes it takes years, but you got to stay focused and keep going. Ne one woman fall, one man fall, the next one step up. The group continues to work. The group continues to plan, and it comes out of your culture. So when, when, when Bookman says, cast down the image of the white man's God, he's not saying cast down the image of God. He's saying stop worshiping what they worshiping if it means that you got to take the loss. No, listen to Liberty, which is why when they sit these Republican rallies and they play that Lynn, Lynn, uh, Lynn, uh, Lynn what is his name, Greenwood, I'm proud to be in America where at least I know I'm free. They be like, listen, to that. I like that song. I like it. <laughs> I like it for the same reason Du Bois said he's in America. He said, I've been fighting for two things my whole life. Number one, the equality under the law. So when you talk about proud to be in America, right. I'm fighting for equality under the law. For my right to be free, you know what freedom looks like for me? It don't look like what it looks like for you. So if you believe in America, if you believe in that Second Amendment, if you believe in that 14th Amendment, if you, were you so hard for this, please understand this. When you kick in my door waving the 4-4, Walker should have blasted all of y'all. Why? That's his right. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Wait. Play a song again. Oh, play a song. Is that y'all song? That's my song too, right? Oh, you trying to figure out a way for these rules not to apply to me. Okay. I understand now that I'm clear. Right, because I got the Haitian Revolution to understand. I'm going to close this out without going through a year by year because what happens is between 1791 when Toussaint joins and 1804, when they finally get liberation, Toussaint becomes, Toussaint is first, he, the first thing happens is they're fighting the French. Toussaint becomes, he gets charge of his own military force within the larger force of Africans who are resisting. His force in 1792 is made up largely of Marons. This is where we get the word Marunage or Cimarrones. The anglicized way to say it is Maroons. These are the runaway Africans. He's in charge of the Maroon army. All of them Negroes is Vaudun. Toussaint, however, having been educated in the French style, is kind of got a foot in all the worlds. He got a foot in the European world, the French world. He got a foot in the Vaudun world, the Maroon world. 
So he's trying to balance all these forces, but liberation is his <laughs> ultimate goal. But but but, but by, he's, by the time he's killed, France declares, I'm sorry, Spain declares war on France. Because they see, oh, maybe this is a chance for us to make some moves. Toussaint becomes a general in the Spanish army. He gonna help the Spain, he gonna help Spain overthrow France. Karen, why is Toussaint, who grew up in the French, who has sympathy for the French and think about the revolution and all this, why is he gonna help Spain fight France? Because when Spain has invaded Haiti. Why? What's his ultimate objective? Freedom for black people. Exactly. Here's the lesson for 2020. Toussaint is like, I'm French. Okay, wait, ho. Spain, you declaring war? Wait, wait, France, y'all talking that? You tell these people over here they can run? No problem. I don't speak no Spanish. I'm with y'all. In other words, I'm with whoever is going to help us. So what does he do? Spain ends up defeating France. And then what happens? Great Britain, they're going to get in it too. In September 1793, British forces begin a five-year occupation of parts of southern and western Saint-Dominique. So Toussaint starts mediating between the British and the Spanish. Then France in 1794, they declare they abolish slavery in all the French colonies. Why? They trying to be Spain. Toussaint, will you come back with us? By June 1794, <laughs> Toussaint is appointed commander of Western territories under French control. <laughs> he made us switch sides again. The British capture Port-au-Prince. So then, now, Toussaint fights against the British. Y'all got to get the hell off my house. So what happens after that? Uh, and then again, well, anyway, this back and forth continues for years. Toussaint with the French against the British. Then the French renege. Then Napoleon takes over. He reestablishes slavery in Guadeloupe, Martinique. So now Toussaint switched. He with the British. And then finally, it's very clear what's about to happen. The French decide that they're going to uh, concede some things to Toussaint. 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte uh, coup overthrows the directory. Now, by 1799, mind you, now we're going through years. I'm collapsing all this. But the French are in their own war. This is like the Portuguese back and forth and what happens with the, with the Angolans. But Toussaint is now going to use another group to help him, the Americans. The Americans come in. And so in 1800, Jacques Mel falls to Toussaint's forces with American naval help. <laughs> and then Toussaint coerces Rome approval of the French takeover of Santo Domingo. In other words, using the Americans as a pawn, he's going to force the French to negotiate. So eventually Napoleon says, we can't beat this guy. So let's negotiate. So what do they do? They say, okay, we're gonna figure out something. We're gonna figure out something. And from 1801 to 1803, the French liars as they were then and now. <laughs> think about what you think about what these French prime ministers have said about Africa and colonies. And one thing, after Haiti beats France eventually in 1804, France declares they need reparations. The only time in world history where a nation that lost is the nation that says they want reparations from the winner. In this case, Haiti, the debt that France tried to put on Haiti, the Western, Western countries tried to back, is the thing that crippled Haiti to this day. But at any rate, Toussaint, he lets the French get him. And this is where I'm going to end. Toussaint L'Overture, they send the French 
army to recapture Haiti. 1802. Toussaint burns down Cap Haitian, refuses to submit, launches campaigns against the British forces. The French army comes in, now they're in a straight war, because France, like, later for all this stuff, liberty, equality, fraternity, all this revolution, which it killed them in words and get their man. In May 1802, Toussaint agrees to a ceasefire. Napoleon has restored slavery in all the other colonies. They capture Toussaint and his family, deport them to France in June, and Toussaint Louverture dies in captivity in Fort de in 1803. But what happens after that? <laughs> Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the ferocious. Y'all Haitians know, y'all screaming. Y'all watching this now, y'all know where this goes. Dessalines, who was second in charge from uh, from uh, uh, Toussaint, who ain't confused about none of this. He's straight, Vaudon. Dessalines was like, watch this. That famous painting where Dessalines takes the Haitian flag, which looks like the French flag, the tricolor. He cuts the white out of the middle of the Haitian flag and the sister stitches the red and the uh, blue together. And there's only a little white square. And on that white square is written in unity, there is strength. He said, you'll never mistake this flag for the French later for y'all. And in 1804, January, Dessalines declares the new state of Haiti because they beat the French ass in November at the Battle of Veterrier. That's what they do. And I've been to the French embassy here in these, I mean, the French. I've been to the Haitian embassy on the anniversary of the battle with the Haitians. You want to talk about a party? They say, that's our Independence Day because Toussaint, and here are the two books. as my man, Jacob Carruthers. Mm. This is his book, The Irritated Gene, an essay on the Haitian Revolution. Jacob H. Carruthers, published by the Comedic Institute. This is the first edition. It's, it's been republished now by my man, uh, Paul Coates, Black Classic Press. Um, Paul Coates, Tana Hathi's father. Yeah, father. That's exactly right. The Irritated Genie. What kind of, what does that title leave in me? Oh, that's good. Actually, this book just came out. Y'all can get this. This is Paul Coates and Eddie Conway. Paul Coates was a panther. It's called The Brother You Choose by Susie Day. You see ta wrote the afterward. These brothers were panthers. This brother, Eddie Conway, did decades. He was a political prisoner. Um, one of the people who helped him was, uh, you know, our sister Nkichi Taifa, whose book just came out, Black Power, Black Lawyer, I was talking about. This book just came, it's a whole book, is a conversation between these two brothers, because Paul was a panther. In fact, Paul said Eddie was in when I joined the Panthers. He's out of Philly, in the Baltimore. Not only did he stand by Eddie Conway all the decades he was in captivity, fought with these other black folks to get him out and others. When he got out, Paul Coates said, I got something for you. Gave me keys to a house. Mm. Paul Coates said, Paul Coates not rich. My point is that we all part of the same struggle. We put this money together, brother. This your house. You gave up decades of your life for us. You're a political prisoner. Hey, Barr! Tony Barr! Watch this. You're going to fall, baby. Why? Because <laughs> the irritated gene. You can't beat us. If you could have beat us, we'd be dead. While your ancestors were scruffing around somewhere in one of the European islands, Ireland, or somewhere in Scotland, we was winning. And if you don't think we're going to win this time, you don't know no history. The irritated genie, Jacob Carruthers says, the genie is his metaphor for the spirit of revolution. He said you could, and every time you try to come for us, it gets irritated. So he said the problem Toussaint had, Toussaint was chasing what he called the phantom. He said, the phantom is the belief that when they say those words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. When they say these words, liberty, equality, fraternity. Toussaint was like, we got y'all beat, you know, 
okay, well, we can negotiate. We got, well, let me write you a letter. No, no, them people there, they got one thing in mind. The whole time the revolution was being planned and fought. The French, regardless of what they were writing to him, regardless of what they were going, they had one thing in mind. We're going to reduce you niggas to servitude. We're going to figure this out. And so they're poised on the verge of victory when they say, we're going to send the whole French army over there and turn y'all back into slaves. At which point Toussaint is like, no, we not. Carruthers is like, he said, the lesson we learned from that now is this. Never snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So well, I'm not going to vote. Vote is just a tool. It ain't the whole thing. But use your tool. Why would you, why would you unilaterally disarm one of your tools on your belt in a war? We can argue over strategy and tactics, but don't put your gun. Do you see all these cats arrayed against you? You got a racist in chief who knew probably, he knew Hope Hill had it. He probably knew he had it. He out there on the stage yelling in this old man's face. Maybe the tactic is to make everybody in here sick. You don't know, but you you caught up in watching gossip. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Because the irritated genie means, this is what Carruthers is saying, irritated genie is you got a spirit in you that is not going to just say I'm just going to die. I'm going to fight back. When you put that spirit with some tactics, you will win. History shows us we'll win. And if, and what it need, what you well, finally, what we have to do to do that, this is Wade Noble's book. My man Wade Nobles, Baba Wade. Uh, Carruthers is an ancestor. Wade is still alive out there on the West Coast, San Francisco, uh, Panther Territory. The Island of Memes, Haiti's Unfinished Revolution. What Wade does is, this is a Kikongo cosmogram with Haitian uh, veve, or ground markings in between. A lot of these are symbols for the crossroads, for Vodun, for that spiritual system that was developed. The cosmogram comes out of Kikongo, because a lot of the Africans, and we talk, remember we talk about this cosmogram a lot, yeah. this that cosmogram again. Uh, here's Wade, here's Bob Wade right there. The Island of Means, Haiti's Unfinished Revolution. Uh, Theophilo Benga, who was my dissertation advisor, who's uh, African out of Congo, writes about it. Here's some of the people who are writing on the back. James Smalls, very important, Leonard Jeffries. What Wade Noble says in here is, the revolution has all these cultural symbols, these memes. When we fight as African people, oh, and by the way, the Haitian revolution inspired Africans across the hemisphere. When they when they call themselves breaking up the Denmark Vesey rebellion, Charleston, South Carolina, Vesey and them said, when they put them on trial, like they was gonna let them go. When they put them on trial, um, <laughs> BZ and them were like, we were told that if we could just burn, burn this building, get some guns, fight y'all, when we get down to the harbor, there will be a boat to take us to St. Dominique. In other words, the idea was Haiti's the free place. That's where we're going. The rebellions in the United States. People, these Negroes in Haiti, for a brief moment of time, they overwhelmed the forces on the other side and united the Dominican Republic in Haiti. Then the British was like, what are y'all doing? They let they sent arms and they sent people to Jamaica and started a fight there. Then Simon Bolivar, when Petion takes over after Haiti is a republic, they send arms to start the Bolivarian Revolution. The Haitians call themselves, in another book that's written of the same title, the Avengers of the New World. They had scholars like uh, Baron Devasti. This is a book called The Colonial System Unveiled. They got a whole theory of how to free yourself. This is over a century before Fanon. This is a century and decades before Fanon. 
P.V. Vasty, who was one of the people with Toussaint Louverture writing about the revolution, is saying, you got to change that slave mentality. This is like 1790, 1800, 1810. He's writing like that. And then in America, Martin Delaney. We talked about this book before. This is a book I, I promise y'all. Everybody should get this book, a version of this is just one of the latest versions, but this is the book. I don't like this title, a corrected edition, because you know white people always gotta act like that, correct something. Blake or the Huts <laughs> of America. This is a novel that Martin Delaney wrote in the 1850s. He and his wife, uh he and his wife named all their children after heroes that were black, Ramses, Cleopatra. One of children was named Toussaint. Because the idea is, even if you can't win for everybody right now, you can keep that spirit of revolution in you. And in the case of Haiti, when the time comes, don't try to chase that phantom. Listen to liberty that lives in all our hearts. Do not compromise with these people. You break their political backs. And if they come for you with an army, you tell them, I'll burn it down before I let you have. And the Haitians to this day, who continue to suffer because Haiti resisted like that, one thing they didn't suffer was a loss of pride. You talk to some Haitians. I don't care if they agree with each other. One thing, sure, I'm Haitian. So y'all know I don't take no stuff. <laughs> like, like the Ashantis in Ghana, the Zulu in South Africa. They could be dead wrong, but we're going to be wrong together, and we're going to be wrong against anybody come up in this house. And that's one reason, you know, it's the irritated genie that shot at those crackers that kicked in Breonna Taylor's uh, door, and Walker was like, who is it? Who is it? Y'all know y'all didn't announce. Daniel Walker, uh, Daniel Cameron, lying. You can listen on the tapes. But guess what? It was the irritated genie shot back at those cops. Because y'all was going to kill somebody anyway. And it's going to be the irritated genie that gets us. We can't get justice for Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor is an ancestor. But guess what? She's an ancestor. Uh, look, Karen, now I just, I'll stop here. I'll, I'll ask you this question. This will be my way of stopping. Do you remember what year was it that uh, Rudy, Rudy Giuliani called himself going to run against Hillary Clinton? For the Senate, was that? It was the early 2000s. It might have been 2000. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. I do yeah, remember. But, but, right, but do you remember? Do you remember um why he dropped out? No, uh no. He dropped out because he got a diagnosis of cancer. He got sick. I remember being in Brooklyn. 2000. Yeah. Was it 2000? It was 2000. Okay, I remember being in Brooklyn, one of many of the one billion restaurants, because you know Brooklyn ain't nothing but the Caribbean. <laughs> so I was in Brooklyn and went in restaurants, listening to these, you know, just eating, listening to these sisters laughing and talking, and I got the biggest laugh. They said, y'all Rudy Giuliani dropped out. He said, you know, we put that voodoo on him. <laughs> Brother Trump, I ain't got nothing for you, brother, but I'm going to tell you right now. Brianna Taylor is an ancestor. So is George Floyd. So is Ahmaud Aubrey. So is Amadou Diallo. There's a whole lot of ancestors over there who got no qualms in helping things be restored into balance. So if you think the ones you can see with your eye are the only ones you fighting, you better get a new worldview. Ooh. So I'll start with that. On that note, all right. <laughs> Let's take some questions in here. I, um, I pulled something th and thank you. You uh goosebumps, chill. You did that. Hey y'all, she did that. Because this Tucson book, I wasn't thinking about that this morning. She well, he I mean, whispered in her ear. As I you know, I watched the comments and stuff. You know, you are a national treasure, everything that you that 
you do is awesome. You should have your own universe and everything, but we're catalysts. For we're catalysts for one another, all of yes. us, right? Yes. We spark things in other people. You don't always have to be the person out front with the microphone. You don't always have to be the one that is everyone's loving, but be a catalyst to something, you know? Please. And that's how I see myself, whether it's books, radio, whatever. I'm just a catalyst. I'm just here to, to help, you know, get the seed spread more. So uh, can, I, 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 can I thank you though? Because through the week and everything, I watch them on YouTube, but you post the tip. You are asking the questions and you invite people into the conversation who are asking the questions and giving us the answers with the same objective that these Africans had. I know all this is going on around here, but as Sonia Sanchez always asks, yeah, but how do we free us? You always asking that question. So I want to thank you for that always, but I want to keep thanking you because it keeps reminding us that just stay focused. Don't worry about don't worry about that. Stay focused. Thank you. Well, back at you. I could not ask the question unless it was dropped on me. And I think you dropped it on one of my shows. I think you brought up that Sonia Sanchez. And ever oh, since that day, that has been in the back of my mind. If it doesn't free us, then we're wasting time. Let's let's right. shout everything. out to that elder. She's still yeah. going strong up there in Philly. Yeah. She's amazing. I, I uh, got to see her and Tony Morrison. And let me just say this: I, I had your, really? yeah, I had your your president on my show. Um, yeah, week. I saw. Yeah, that's not me clicking. I don't know where the clicking's coming from. So y'all just stuff through it, right? Um, but Sonia Sanchez is in the Tony Morrison documentary that's on Hulu, and I was really proud. But she, I didn't know that Tony Morrison went to the same uh, drama school at Howard, and she was like a drama person at Howard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know, um, Morrison's whole early career, her whole theater, she was theater at Howard, no question. Yeah. And and um, the president, for, uh, Wayne Frederick, said that he's going, that the uh, school uh, that was just a program is going to be a school again. So that's what they that, say. In fact, he made that promise with Chad Bozeman there when Chad Bozeman came to get that honorary degree. And as we talked about, Chad Bozeman was one of those students who rushed the stage at the previous president when they merged the School of Fine Arts into the College of Fine Arts. And I remember when Dr. Frederick said that, when my, my brother Wayne Frederick said that, Chad Bozeman was standing there with a look on his face like this. In other words, that's great. That's great. Let's see it. <laughs> In other words, so I expect fully that he's going to honor that. I expect fully that we're going to do that, that Howard's going to do that. And when it happens, we're going to have the big celebration. We had a big celebration. But do not, def do not snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. In other words, don't wait too long. <laughs> yeah. All right, let me uh, get a question in from Cham Cham. Uh, he said, Dr. Carr, would you explain to us the doctrines of discovery and its effects on the world of melanated people? Oh, see, ancestors, because I moved this book and I said, let me put this, uh, get this book right here. See that? Unsettling truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. That's Mark Charles and Soon Chang Ra. This book hasn't been out long. Unsettling truths. The whole point is the doctrine of discovery basically says, I'm here, it's mine. So, you know, as children, you know, some of y'all did, we did this in the deep south. Y'all did it too, Ken. I know you back and forth in, the, in, the car, in them cars from Jersey going down south, right? You probably get bored, you say, that's my car. So car, that's my car, that's my car. In other words, the doctrine of discovery works like, you. not only do you point and say, that's my car, you jump out like you're in the matrix and jump in that car and say, now nah, that's my car. In other words, I don't care who's living here. When I showed up, 
That's it. In fact, they have a concept in the law, well, European law, what's that called? Terra nullius, meaning it's empty earth. In other words, I'm here. That's how they treated the Native Americans. What they're writing about in Unsettling Truths is that, in fact, I'll read it. In the 15th century, official church edicts gave Christian explorers the right to claim territories they discovered. This was an institutionalized, it was institutionalized as an implicit national framework that justifies American triumphalism, white supremacy, and ongoing injustices. The result is that the dominant culture idealizes a history of discovery, opportunity, expansion, and equality. White minority communities have been traumatized by, while minority communities rather, have been traumatized by colonization, slavery, segregation, and dehumanization. This is why you can't buy into a settler colonial mindset as you're looking for liberation. So don't try to join the criminal enterprise. Well, America is great and, you know, it's got its big flaws. And, you know, the original sin is not slavery. If you say that, what you're saying is you bought into the doctrine of discovery. You acting like nobody was here. The original sin is them rolling on these human beings who was over here. In fact, Gerald Horn, two of his most recent books, The Dawn of the Apocalypse, the record, mm. the roots of slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, and capitalism in the law 16th century. This is the answer. And the apocalypse of settler colonialism, the roots in the 17th century North America and the Caribbean. This is where Gerald is saying the doctrine of discovery is the idea that leads to the mess we're in if we consider ourselves part of this place as some kind of gift. That's the same mentality says it good. They took us out of Africa. Because, you know, we was over there eating each other up. <laughs> that's all that ignorance. And people say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, how much more ridiculous is it for you to claim the place you're in in terms of their national myths? They go get union and read about the fact that this whole thing falls apart if you think for yourself. Then maybe you like Toussaint and Desaline and Henri Christophe and Petion and Baron de Vasti and Prince Sanders and all them people going back to Mackendall and Bukman Duddy and all them, all those people who are saying to themselves, no, 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 we got to have our own theories, our own theories, like Cecile Fatima, who was the uh, Mambo, who was there at the ritual in 1791. You've got to think for yourself. How do it free us? Well, us is everybody, right? Is it is George Washington? And, no, that ain't us. When did George Washington become your father? He's not my dad. So let's think about this. How do it free us and poor whites? We want you free too. But we're not going to trade us being unfree and you being white. Give up your whiteness. Oh, I should mention that in terms of Haitian Revolution. Toussaint, and this is where I think it's very, I can't wait to get to the part in Black Spartacus because he's going through the literature. The Haitians come up with a concept where they say, well, it's actually Desaline that'll come after Toussaint, but Toussaint starts it. He's saying everybody on this island is going to be equal and free even though Toussaint got some real problems because he basically tells these Africans who are out there cutting the sugarcane and stuff, y'all got to stay out there for a little while longer so we can build our economy. That's a, that's a mistake Toussaint made, very complicated. But at any rate, Desaline come along and say, you know what? I'm going to elevate that concept. Everybody on the island is black. But we are white people. You black too. Well, how could I be black? We define black in Haiti as equal rights. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> so in other words, if, if you're gonna stay here, you black. So if you can't hang, get the hell out. <laughs> so we in other words, that would destroy the doctrine of discovery. That's the way black Biko and them talked about it. Steve Biko and them. Black becomes a political weapon, which is why you often find folks who come from like South Africa, other 
people say, well, black power. He said, but you Indian. No, you colored. No, blackness is a political phenomenon. The doctrine of discovery is ruptured forever when we embrace a broader concept of humanity, which is what Malcolm and them were doing. Stop talking about civil rights. Talk about human rights. Talk about human. Because if you talk about civil rights, you're tying yourself to the settler colonial model, to the state, and you're honoring this country and this flag over somebody else's country and flag. No, everybody should have clean water. You worry about Roe versus Wade? Yes, you should. But for a human rights reason, why? I'm a human being. I should have control over my body. That's the principle. Amy, whatever you love, Barrett, whatever your name is, whether you did or didn't have COVID. We don't want nobody to be sick. But guess what? We don't want nobody to be sick. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's a human rights. So wait, you want me to be, you okay with me being sick? When you catch it, I'm supposed to give you thoughts and prayers? You better be careful what you ask for. Go ask some Haitian women in uh, Brooklyn about thoughts and prayers. Thoughts Ooh. and prayers is a neutral term. Uh, <laughs> we, we normally wrap these up at two o'clock, but I want to give room for questions. So we're going to go to 215. I'm okay, to... I'm sorry. Yes, let's do that. I'm sorry. I'll make the next question. I can talk to you forever. All right. So James Morgan wants Dr. Carr to please discuss the historical relationship between Haiti and the Dahomey. Oh, and actually, I'm glad that, that that's Brother James. In fact, James, uh, who's from Jersey, James okay. grew up in Newark. James cracked me up. When Wait, hold on. Not only do you know about everybody, everything in history, you know about the people in the chat? Some of them. No, only because in some of these cats is my former student. James, my, James is, um, James is, and I don't want to make none of the rest of the Prince Hall Masons mad since I'm a member of Prince Hall, but uh, James is Prince Hall Mason. James is uh, part of the study lodge here in D.C. James is one of the finest historians of any age walking the earth right now. He is a master genealogist. He's a major historian. Um, and not just Masonic history, I mean history generally. And uh, I say he's the best, certainly be one of the best students of Prince Hall Masonry there is. But James also started a study group. At the beginning of the spring, we were talking about doing a study group around Blake. So James started a study group on Blake. He's got a bunch of young brothers and sisters. They're doing a study, reading Blake, discussing it. Um, and when he mentions that, oh man, Wait, hold on. I, I randomly picked somebody out of the chat. No, you didn't. The ancestors did that. Yes, yeah, see, see, see how this worked? Oh, by the way, remember when you had our brother on, Abdul Rahman, talking about who killed Malcolm X? James, James from Newark. So he was there and, you know, he asked a question they were discussing. But er everybody in there who is from Newark was laughing because everybody knew that. What you didn't know? Well, you and Harry Louis Gates didn't know. Okay. Oh, wait. Netflix didn't. Know. Oh, y'all trying to make a series that. And so James, James is a story. <laughs> so, so it's like everybody know who killed Malcolm X. Come on, bro. In fact, I would pull. Oh, my man Zach Condo. I had a book over here somewhere. Uh, that's really the book on the assassination of Malcolm X. Is Zach Condo's book, which I think is out of print now. I thought I saw it the other day. I have it over here somewhere. It's called Conspiracies. Zach, the professor, was a professor at Bowie State. Very quickly. Uh, Dahomey is the source of origin for Vodun. Dijimon Honsu. Like, if you go to Dijimon Honsu, who is uh, not from Gabon. Where is Dijimon from? Um, old Dahomey is now Benin. His name, Honsu, he says, it means I was born in the Voodoo Shrine. He did a whole documentary. You can get it on Amazon Prime. It's called uh, uh, Voodoo, Roots to Heaven, where he goes back home and talks about Vodun. That is the major source for the Vodun of Haiti. But it is commingled with the uh, the Kikongo people. This is why uh, Wade has that symbol on. But this is a good book, Flash of the Spirit, Robert Ferris Thompson, who's still alive, 
uh, white dude from Texas. He's in his, I guess he's almost 90 now, if he's not over, who uh, was at Yale for many years. Jean-Michel Basquiat was so moved by this book that he gave Robert Ferris Thompson a piece of art and then continued to give him stuff over the years. He said, I read this book and I, I just knew that I understood where I was from. You look at the table of contents, chapter three, chapter three, the Rara of the universe, Bodun religion and art in Haiti. On page 161, finally James and James, 163, for example, um, he talks about the fact that, no, 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 no. Yeah, actually 165, Dahomey, a distant paradigm. Dahomey is the source of Vodun. The Fong people, for example, Wida, and I want, I want, I got some more books in there. I got Wida shrines. I was actually thinking about that the other day. I was pulling some stuff. So much of what we think of in terms of the spiritual traditions of Vodun are blendings of Yoruba people, the Fong people, the Congo people. They all mix it in together. And when it's mixed in together, it becomes, it's a pan-African really gloss and religion. So, you know, the, the, the Kikongo were very particular, for example, about graves and dirt and you know, great dirt from the grave, being able to speak names into Nkisi, what they call it, medicines. So like packets, like uh, you could say something and wrap it up, put somebody's name in something. That's a charm you can use for or against them. All that stuff that then gets put on the boats and sent to New Orleans and Mobile, where Willie Mays and Henry Aaron and them from, and all them Gulf Coast cities. And then in the United States, it becomes hoodoo. So some of y'all know about that. Don't eat everybody's red sauce. If you go into the beauty salon and somebody does your hair, you want all your hair, burn my hair, don't let it go in, all that stuff. Look, because you don't want nothing that belongs to your physical body to get to somebody who has some power over you. You want somebody to fall in love with them? Bring them your house and cook for them and put some something in their red sauce. Next thing you know, they can't leave you alone. I said, what the hell? All that stuff. <laughs> the homie is the distant <laughs> paradigm <laughs> that's informing all that stuff. Because we believe in the world. Of, in fact, Karen, I don't know if you ever did this. You probably were a culprit. I ain't going to accuse you of nothing. I'm just going to ask you. Don't accuse me. The first time a boy child in a family comes back to the house with his hair rebraided or something, and it wasn't the woman in the family. The woman's like, who been in your hair? Who been in your hair? Is this a girl we ain't met yet? Or, mm. you know, it, it, boy child, say, you know, you go to somebody's house. I'm sure somebody told you elders in your family like they told me. Don't just go somewhere and eat anybody's this. Don't drink out of, man, what, black people paranoid? No, black people understand that there are many forces in the world. And the quickest way to get something in you is to put it in your food. It might not be poison. It might be somebody like you. And then spoke your name over something and dropped it in, stirred it up. Now you ate it and you want to know why you constantly texting her. What <laughs> <laughs> happened to you, Dr. Carr? Okay, we'll move on. All right. Yeah, but, but, but the beautiful thing about ancestors, we all have them. So we all know they fight for us. And so some of them, you know, we protected. <laughs> There have been a lot of questions about book recommendations. Coco wants to know if there are any for West Indians. I, you know, do you recommend books just for people, for a group of people? Or and then somebody else asked the top five books that you think every black person should read. Uh, uh, I think um, many of them we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of in terms of, I hate to say West Indians. Well, I guess West Indians is a term that's used. Uh, there is no wrong label. I mean, all these labels came from other people. Even the word Africa comes from the Latin, the Romans. But a lot of people will say, for example, that a, a usable place for us to start in terms of the history of the Caribbean is um, 
Eric Williams' book from Columbus to Castro. A lot of people swear by that. And I, and I, and I, and I do too. I do too. My man, Tony Martin from Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, Tony, Tony, do I have your book somewhere, brother? I can pull it. If not, oh, look at that. <laughs> look at that. I love Tony Martin was my brother. I love this brother. This one here, Caribbean history from pre-colonial origins to the present. This is from that great son of Trinidad and Tobago, the great Tony Martin. The thing about Tony, he's an ancestor now. Um, Tony was the first great historian of the Garvey movement. His book, Race First. In fact, wow, ancestors. Karen, I, I'll tell you. Hmm. Tony Martin started a publishing company when he was a professor at Wellesley College called the Majority Press. He said, I don't trust these people to publish this stuff the way we need it published. He, had, he created something called the New Marcus Garvey, Garvey Library. Published a number of books. I'll show y'all. In fact, you give me 10 seconds. I will, hold on, give me, a, give me a couple of seconds here. Put these books down. See if I can pull out a few for you. All right, let's do this together. He published, these are just a few of them. Here's a little book for children. Marcus Garvey, Hero, a first biography. Tony Martin, Majority Press, the new Marcus Garvey Library, Volume 3. Here's a great book. This is a book I think everybody should have. Marcus Garvey, The Message to the People, Course of African Philosophy, Tony Martin, edited, New Marcus Garvey Library, number seven. Uh, and this is a book, African Fundamentalism, a literary and cultural anthology of Garvey's Harlem Renaissance, ed compiled and edited by Tony Martin, The Majority Press, you see. And so the reason I bring these up is because Tony Martin is showing the connections between Garvey and Ida Wells, who's writing saying, buy you a black doll at the Negro baby doll factory. Garvey is writing about how Carter G. Woodson would write in Garvey's uh, newspaper. And so, in fact, I'll show you one more, and then I'm going to show you why the ancestors really came down on us. I tell you, man, because he's an ancestor, too. I love. I, in fact, I used to say, Tony, Tony, you're the coolest black man I've ever known, because Tony Martin would never, he'd laugh and joke, but he, he always have a kind of have smile on his face and he'd be looking serious most of the time too. We were in LA for a conference. I think this was 94 when an earthquake came. Cal State Northridge. No, Cal State Dominguez Hills. Sunday morning, he's talking about Garvey. He's talking about Garvey and then the whole building starts shaking. We all judging it. He just stands at the podium and waits for it to stop shaking. When it stops shaking, he said, and so Marcus Garvey told, and we had started cheering. He never moved. I'm like, God, what the hell, Tony? This Tony's book, The Pan-African Connection from Slavery to Garvey and Beyond. This is number six in the new Marcus Garvey Library. Ah, oh, look at that, look. Chapter seven, Carter G. Woodson and Marcus Garvey. Y'all mm. see all this stuff here. Gar anyway, Tony Martin made transition. His books, out of print. Until... An intrepid publisher who owns his own printing press in Baltimore says, I'm bringing them back. So this year, this year, the majority press back catalog was acquired by and will be re-released by Black Classic Press, owned by Paul Coates. Coates, oh, oh my God. I, Man, that I, just gets me chills. You can't, you can't. <laughs> Come on. Stuff up. All right. Let me get this question in. Uh, this is a good one because I'm, I'm, I can't wait for us to realize that we're all African. Yes. And even the colonized African need to wake the F up. 
stop skin bleaching and stop praying to a white Jesus. But can I share this knowledge with my with my African family so that they understand American black? Hmm. Thoughts. Well, the beautiful thing about it, I'll answer this very quickly is that as we live, we learn, we build. This has always been something we've had to fight against because we're in a world system that is absolutely anti-African. It is able to do what it does by keeping us divided. So don't, you know, this is tough. Um, like I go on YouTube, like we're on YouTube now. So I'm looking around for these kind, and you can find anything you want on YouTube, right? So there's this young cat out of Ghana, Warde Maya, who likes going around showing, he said, y'all don't believe Africa is great. Look at this. He just goes all over Africa. He's talking to students in, in Rwanda. He's in South Africa. He's in Nigeria. He's talking to young people everywhere. He's always showing, people say, Warde, why don't you show the bad sides of Africa? He, he responds and says, well, you show the bad sides of Africa. I'm showing everything else. He's Ghanaian, but he's a Pan-Africanist. Then there's a couple. They got a series on YouTube called Black Acres of the Gambia. They just left America. They over there now and they just building. They going through, and it's fascinating. There's, there's a brother and sister. The children are coming over now, this kind of thing. And it's funny to me because, like, they had a whole thing. They did a series on credit. And they was like, yeah, you know, ask yourself, do you need your credit score in America when you come here? I said, no, we ran up what we needed, got our money, and got the hell out. What, they going to come sue us over here? I mean, I mean, it's fascinating to see. I mean, <laughs> We're not advocating that you do that. No, 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 no. However, <laughs> the, the, the principle is stop thinking that you have to be tied to any one place in the world. So sharing this, I think, for me, and this is what I've learned over the years teaching, certainly in Black institutions and, 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 and with Black children in particular, my K-12 students in Philadelphia, who I still work with, my people, Freedom School, you know, shout out to Ansharae Hines and all them people, you know, Nadira Sulaiman. I work them. I love, that's my heart. Those are my heart. And then at Howard as well and the other HBCUs, if you introduce a question and have people come to the question from their experiences, we find out that there are so many things we share. Like when we talk about Vodun a couple of weeks ago in class, and I'm asking them about that, and we, we, read, we read Flash of the Spirit. I said, y'all tell the rest of us these parts of the Flash that you've experienced. And then they unmute themselves as 100 students in that class. And you start seeing them saying, this is what my grandmother told me. Or, this is what my cousin told me. Or, this is what I experienced. And then they start talking to each other and realize, we were told we were different than y'all. Y'all do that too? Yes, we do it too. A lot of it, a lot of it is just us not knowing each other. So that's why this stuff is important. Let's find out about each other. And then when somebody else come in the room, oh no, y'all are different because our interest, who is us? Who is our interest? Why are you talking about our interest? What is our interest? Oh, you want me to wear that flag before I talk to my cousin? You, you better go read some history. We've never done that. A couple of questions about repatriation, uh, repatriation and maybe going back to Africa. And, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I think I was saying that I got a visa and I can't leave because they're not letting us in. And yes. I get it. Yes. Uh, I think we should go and do whatever the hell we want to do because we're free. we should be free to, to be wherever we should be. And, you know, staying and fighting, that's why I wanted you to talk about Louboutin today. But you know, if if we need to go somewhere and regroup, go somewhere and chill for a minute so things calm down. Yes, I think we should have the options to do all of these things. And we're gonna wrap up. We got one minute. Yes. Uh, oh, I should have uh Sankofa.com. All the old Tony Martin books. Paul shipped them to Sankofa.com. If you go to Sankofa or call them, they the books I showed you, you can get every last one of them and most of the rest of them. Okay, I'll put that in the link uh, in yes. the description. 
Let me thank you again. I mean, this is amazing to be able no, to come. Thank to you. Uh, we got a lot to cover over the next couple of months. And thank God for this internet. We can do it anywhere. Yes, yes. Oh, no, that's true. Black Acres of Gammy's got a lot of problems. I just mentioned that because I've been surfing. So somebody said it in the chat. So I agree. It's complicated. I love you, sis. And thank you for this, for all of us, for us having these conversations. I didn't get to say thank you to all the people that donated. And gave oh, us yeah. Thank y'all. All of that and gave us likes and thumbs up. And even thank you for the trolls because you remind us that we're doing some good things here. Yes, absolutely. So we thank you. Thank you, family, for uh, sharing this and growing it. And we love you. We'll see you next month. But we'll see you next week, actually. Next week, no question. Every week. But we'll see you next month live. And uh, thank you, Dr. Carr. Have a blessed day. Thank you, dear. You have a blessed day, too, Professor Hunter. You done jail broke the university now. What they going to do? We can't go back. No, they cannot. I love you. I love you, too. (laughs) See you.